This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Piper in the Woods by Philip K. Dick. It's read by Greg Marguerite for LibriVox. It runs 49 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Piper in the Woods by Philip K. Dick This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite Piper in the Woods by Philip K. Dick Earth maintained an important garrison on asteroid Y-3. Now suddenly it was imperiled with a biological impossibility, men becoming plants. Well, Corporal Westerberg, Dr. Henry Harris said gently, just why do you think you're a plant? As he spoke, Harris glanced down again at the card on his desk. It was from the base commander himself, made out in Cox's heavy scrawl. Doc, this is the lad I told you about. Talk to him and try to find out how he got this delusion. He's from the new garrison, the new check station on asteroid Y-3, and we don't want anything to go wrong there. Especially a silly damn thing like this. Harris pushed the card aside and stared back up at the youth across the desk from him. The young man seemed ill at ease and appeared to be avoiding answering the question Harris had put to him. Harris frowned. Westerberg was a good-looking chap, actually handsome in his patrol uniform, a shock of blonde hair over one eye. He was tall, almost six feet, a fine, healthy lad, just two years out of training, according to the card. Born in Detroit, had measles when he was nine, interested in jet engines, tennis, and girls. Twenty-six years old. Well, Corporal Westerberg, Dr. Harris said again, why do you think you're a plant? The corporal looked up shyly. He cleared his throat. Sir, I am a plant. I don't just think so. I've been a plant for several days now. I see. The doctor nodded. You mean that you weren't always a plant? No, sir. I just became a plant recently. And what were you before you became a plant? Well, sir, I was just like the rest of you. There was silence. Dr. Harris took up his pen and scratched a few lines, but nothing of importance came. A plant, and such a healthy-looking lad. Harris removed his steel-rimmed glasses and polished them with his handkerchief. He put them on again and leaned back in his chair. Care for a cigarette, Corporal? No, sir. The doctor lit one himself, resting his arm on the edge of the chair. Corporal, you must realize that there are very few men who become plants, especially on such short notice. I have to admit you are the first person who has ever told me such a thing. Yes, sir, I realize it's quite rare. You can understand why I'm interested, then. When you say you're a plant, you mean you're not capable of mobility? Or 
Do you mean you're a vegetable as opposed to an animal? Or just what?" The corporal looked away. I can't tell you any more, he murmured. I'm sorry, sir. Well, would you mind telling me how you became a plant? Corporal Westerberg hesitated. He stared down at the floor, then out the window at the spaceport, then at a fly on the desk. At last he stood up, getting slowly to his feet. I can't even tell you that, sir, he said. You can't? Why not? Because, because I promised not to. The room was silent. Dr. Harris rose, too, and they both stood facing each other. Harris frowned, rubbing his jaw. Corporal, just who did you promise? I can't even tell you that, sir. I'm sorry. The doctor considered this. At last he went to the door and opened it. All right, Corporal, you may go now, and thanks for your time. I'm sorry I'm not more helpful. The corporal went slowly out, and Harris closed the door after him. Then he went across his office to the vidphone. He rang Commander Cox's letter. A moment later the beefy, good-natured face of the base commander appeared. Cox, this is Harris. I talked to him, all right. All I could get is the statement that he's a plant. What else is there? What kind of behavior pattern? Well, Cox said, the first thing they noticed was that he wouldn't do any work. The garrison chief reported that this Westerberg would wander off outside the garrison and just sit all day long. Just sit. In the sun? Yes, just sit in the sun. Then at nightfall he would come back in. When they asked why he wasn't working in the jet repair building, he told them he had to be out in the sun. Then he said... Cox hesitated. Yes, said what? He said that work was unnatural that it was a waste of time, that the only worthwhile thing was to sit and contemplate, outside. What then? Then they asked him how he got that idea, and he revealed to them that he had become a plant. I'm going to have to talk to him again, I can see, Harris said. And he applied for a permanent discharge from the patrol. What reason did he give? The same, that he's a plant now and has no more interest in being a patrolman. All he wants to do is sit in the sun. It's the damnedest thing I ever heard. All right. I think I'll visit him in his quarters. Harris looked at his watch. I'll go over after dinner. Good luck, Cox said gloomily. But who ever heard of a man turning into a plant? We told him it wasn't possible, but he just smiled at us. I'll let you know how I make out, Harris said. Harris walked slowly down the hall. It was after six. The evening meal was over. A dim concept was coming into his mind, but it was much too soon to be sure. He increased his pace, turning right at the end of the hall. Two nurses passed, hurrying by. Westerberg was quartered with a buddy, a man who had been injured in a jet blast and who was now almost recovered. Harris came to the dorm wing and stopped, checking the numbers on the doors. Can I help you, sir? The robot attendant said, gliding up. I'm looking for Corporal Westerberg's room. Three doors to the right. Harris went on. Asteroid Y-3 had only recently been garrisoned and staffed. It had become the primary checkpoint to halt and examine ships entering the system from outer space. 
The garrison made sure that no dangerous bacteria, fungus, or what not arrived to infect the system. A nice asteroid it was, warm, well-watered, with trees and lakes and lots of sunlight, and the most modern garrison in the nine planets. He shook his head, coming to the third door. He stopped, raising his hand and knocking. "'Who's there?' sounded through the door. "'I want to see Corporal Westerberg.' The door opened. A bovine youth with horn-rimmed glasses looked out, a book in his hand. "'Who are you?' "'Dr. Harris.' "'I'm sorry, sir. Corporal Westerberg is asleep.' "'Would he mind if I woke him up? I want very much to talk to him.' Harris peered inside. He could see a neat room with a desk, a rug, and lamp, and two bunks. On one of the bunks was Westerberg, lying face up, his arms folded across his chest, his eyes tightly closed. "'Sir,' the bovine youth said, "'I'm afraid I can't wake him up for you much as I'd like to.' "'You can't. Why not?' "'Sir, Corporal Westerberg won't wake up. Not after the sun sets. He just won't. He—' can't be wakened. Cataleptic? Really? But in the morning, as soon as the sun comes up, he leaps out of bed and goes outside, stays the whole day. I see, the doctor said. Well, thanks anyhow. He went back out into the hall, and the door shut after him. There's more to this man than I realized, he murmured. He went on back the way he had come. It was a warm, sunny day. The sky was almost free of clouds, and a gentle wind moved through the cedars along the bank of the stream. There was a path leading from the hospital building down the slope to the stream. At the stream a small bridge led over to the other side, and a few patients were standing on the bridge, wrapped in their bathrobes, looking aimlessly down at the water. It took Harris several minutes to find Westerberg. The youth was not with the other patients, near or around the bridge. He had gone farther down, past the cedar trees, and out onto a strip of bright meadow where poppies and grass grew everywhere. He was sitting on the stream bank on a flat gray stone, leaning back and staring up, his mouth open a little. He did not notice the doctor until Harris was almost beside him. Hello? Harris said softly. Westerberg opened his eyes, looking up. He smiled and got slowly to his feet, a graceful flowing motion that was rather surprising for a man of his size. Hello, doctor. What brings you out here? Nothing. Thought I'd get some sun. Here, you can share my rock. Westerberg moved over, and Harris sat down gingerly, being careful not to catch his trousers on the sharp edges of the rock. He lit a cigarette and gazed silently down at the water. Beside him, Westerberg had resumed his strange position, leaning back, resting on his hands, staring up with his eyes shut tight. "'Nice day,' the doctor said. "'Yes.' "'Do you come here every day?' "'Yes.' "'You like it better out here than inside?' "'I can't stay inside.' Westerberg said. You can't? How do you mean, can't? You would die without air, wouldn't you? The corporal said. And you'd die without sunlight? Westerberg nodded. Corporal, 
May I ask you something? Do you plan to do this the rest of your life? Sit out in the sun on a flat rock? Nothing else? Westerberg nodded. How about your job? You went to school for years to become a patrolman. You wanted to enter the patrol very badly. You were given a fine rating and a first-class position. How do you feel giving all that up? You know it won't be easy to get back in. Do you realize that? I realize it. And you're really going to give it all up? That's right. Harris was silent for a while. At last he put his cigarette out and turned toward the youth. All right. Let's say you give up your job and sit in the sun. Well, what happens then? Someone else has to do the job instead of you, isn't that true? The job has to be done. Your job has to be done. And if you don't do it, someone else has to. I suppose so. Westerberg, suppose everyone felt the way you do. Suppose everyone wanted to sit in the sun all day. What would happen? No one would check ships coming from outer space. Bacteria and toxic crystals would enter the system and cause mass death and suffering. Isn't that right? If everyone felt the way I do, they wouldn't be going into outer space. But they have to. They have to trade. They have to get minerals and products and new plants. Why? To keep society going. Why? Well... Harris gestured. People couldn't live without society. Westerberg said nothing to that. Harris watched him, but the youth did not answer. Isn't that right? Harris said. Perhaps. It's a peculiar business, Doctor. You know, I struggled for years to get through training. I had to work and pay my own way. Washed dishes, work in kitchens, studied at night, learned, crammed, worked on and on. And you know what I think now? What? I wish I'd become a plant earlier. Dr. Harris stood up. Westerberg, when you come inside, will you stop off at my office? I want to give you a few tests, if you don't mind. The shock box? Westerberg smiled. I knew that would be coming around. Sure, I don't mind. Nettled, Harris left the rock, walking back up the bank a short distance. About three, Corporal. The Corporal nodded. Harris made his way up the hill to the path toward the hospital building. The whole thing was beginning to become more clear to him. A boy who had struggled all his life. Financial insecurity, idealized goal, getting a patrol assignment. Finally reached it, found the load too great, and on asteroid Y3 there was too much vegetation to look at all day. Primitive identification and projection on the flora of the asteroid. Concept of security involved in immobility and permanence. Unchanging forest. He entered the building. A robot orderly stopped him almost at once. Sir, Commander Cox wants you urgently on the vidphone. Thanks. Harris strode to his office. He dialed Cox's letter, and the commander's face came presently into focus. Cox! This is Harris. I've been out talking to the boy. I'm beginning to get this lined up. Now I can see the pattern. Too much load, too long. Finally gets what he wants, and the idealization shatters under the— Harris! Cox barked. Shut up and listen. I just got a report from Y3. They're sending an express rocket here. It's on the way. An express rocket? Five more cases like Westerberg. 
all say they're plants. The garrison chief is worried as hell. Says we must find out what it is or the garrison will fall apart right away. Do you get me, Harris? Find out what it is. Yes, sir, Harris murmured. Y yes, sir. By the end of the week there were twenty cases, and all, of course, were from Asteroid Y-3. Commander Cox and Harris stood together at the top of the hill, looking gloomily down at the stream below. Sixteen men and four women sat in the sun along the bank, none of them moving, none speaking. An hour had gone by since Cox and Harris appeared, and in all that time the twenty people below had not stirred. I don't get it, Cox said, shaking his head. I just absolutely don't get it. Harris, is this the beginning of the end? Is everything going to start cracking around us? It gives me a hell of a strange feeling to see those people down there, basking away in the sun, just sitting and basking. Who's that man there with the red hair? That's Ulrich Deutsch. He was second in command at the garrison. Now look at him. Sits and dozes with his mouth open and his eyes shut. A week ago that man was climbing, going right to the top. When the garrison chief retires he was supposed to take over, maybe another year at the most. All his life he's been climbing to get up there. And now he sits in the sun, Harris finished. That woman, the brunette with the short hair, career woman, head of the entire office staff at the garrison, and the man beside her, janitor, and that cute little gal there with the bosom, secretary, just out of school, all kinds, and I got a note this morning, three more coming in sometime today. Harris nodded. The strange thing is they really want to sit down there. They're completely rational. They could do something else, but they just don't care to. Well, Cox said, what are you going to do? Have you found anything? We're counting on you. Let's hear it. I couldn't get anything out of them directly, Harris said, but I've had some interesting results with the shock box. Let's go inside and I'll show you. Fine. Cox turned and started toward the hospital. Show me anything you've got. This is serious. Now I know how Tiberius felt when Christianity showed up in high places. Harris snapped off the light. The room was pitch black. I'll run this first reel for you. The subject is one of the best biologists stationed at the garrison, Robert Bradshaw. He came in yesterday. I got a good run from the shock box because Bradshaw's mind is so highly differentiated. There's a lot of repressed material of a non-rational nature, more than usual. He pressed the switch. The projector whirred, and on the far wall a three-dimensional image appeared in color, so real that it might have been the man himself. Robert Bradshaw was a man of fifty, heavy-set, with iron-gray hair and a square jaw. He sat in the chair calmly, his hands resting on the arms, oblivious to the electrodes attached to his neck and wrist. There I go, Harris said. Watch. His film image appeared approaching Bradshaw. Now, Mr. Bradshaw, his image said, this won't hurt you at all, and it'll help us a lot. The image rotated the controls on the shock box. Bradshaw stiffened and his jaw set, but otherwise he gave no sign. The image of Harris regarded him for a time and then stepped away from the controls. Can you hear me, Mr. Bradshaw? the image asked. Yes. What is your name? 
Robert C. Bradshaw. What is your position? Chief Biologist at the check station on Y-3. Are you there now? No, I'm back on Terra in a hospital. Why? Because I admitted to the garrison chief that I had become a plant. Is that true, that you are a plant? Yes. In a non-biological sense, I retain the physiology of a human being, of course. What do you mean, then, that you're a plant? The reference is to attitudinal response, to Weltenschung. Go on. It is possible for a warm-blooded animal, an upper primate, to adopt the psychology of a plant to some extent. Yes, I refer to this. And the others, they refer to this also? Yes. How did this occur, your adopting this attitude? Bradshaw's image hesitated, the lips twitching. See? Harris said to Cox. Strong conflict. He wouldn't have gone on if he had been fully conscious. I... Yes? I was taught to become a plant. The image of Harris showed surprise and interest. What do you mean you were taught to become a plant? They realized my problems and taught me to become a plant. Now I'm free from them, the problems. Who? Who taught you? The Pipers. Who? The Pipers? Who are the Pipers? There was no answer. Mr. Bradshaw, who are the Pipers? After a long, agonized pause, the heavy lips parted. They live in the woods. Harris snapped off the projector, and the lights came on. He and Cox blinked. That was all I could get, Harris said. But I was lucky to get that. He wasn't supposed to tell. Not at all. That was the thing they all promised not to do. Tell who taught them to become plants. The Pipers who live in the woods on Asteroid Y-3. You got this story from all twenty? No, Harris grimaced. Most of them put up too much fight. I couldn't even get this much from them. Cox reflected. The Pipers. Well, what do you propose to do? Just wait around until you can get the full story? Is that your program? No, Harris said. Not at all. I'm going to Y-3 and find out who the Pipers are myself. The small patrol ship made its landing with care and precision, its jets choking into final silence. The hatch slid back, and Dr. Henry Harris found himself staring out at a field of brown, sun-baked landing field. At the end of the field was a tall signal tower. Around the field, on all sides, were long, gray buildings, the garrison check station itself. Not far off, a huge Venusian cruiser was parked, a vast green hulk, like an enormous lime. The technicians from the station were swarming all over it, checking and examining each inch of it for lethal life-forms and poisons that might have attached themselves to the hull. "'All out, sir,' the pilot said. Harris nodded. He took hold of his two suitcases and stepped carefully down. The ground was hot underfoot, and he blinked in the bright sunlight. Jupiter was in the sky, and the vast planet reflected considerable sunlight down onto the asteroid. Harris started across the field, carrying his suitcases. A field attendant was already busy opening the storage compartment of the patrol ship, extracting his trunk. 
The attendant lowered the trunk into a waiting dolly and came after him, manipulating the little truck with bored skill. As Harris came to the entrance of the signal tower, the gate slid back and a man came forward, an older man, large and robust, with white hair and a steady walk. "'How are you, doctor?' he said, holding out his hand. "'I'm Lawrence Watts, the garrison chief.' They shook hands. Watts smiled down at Harris. He was a huge old man, still regal and straight in his dark blue uniform, with his gold epaulets sparkling on his shoulders. "'Have a good trip?' Watts asked. "'Come on inside, and I'll have a drink fixed for you. It gets hot around here, with the big mirror up there.' "'Jupiter?' Harris followed him inside the building. The signal tower was cool and dark, a welcome relief. Why is the gravity so near Terra's? I expected to go flying off like a kangaroo. Is it artificial? No. There's a dense core of some kind to the asteroid, some kind of metallic deposit. That's why we picked this asteroid out of all the others. It made the construction problem much simpler, and it also explains why the asteroid has natural air and water. Did you see the hills? The hills? When we get up higher in the tower, we'll be able to see over the buildings. There's quite a natural park here, a regular little forest, complete with everything you'd want. Come in here, Harris. This is my office. The old man strode at quite a clip around the corner and into a large, well-furnished apartment. Isn't this pleasant? I intend to make my last year here as amiable as possible. He frowned. Of course, with Deutsch gone, I may be here forever. Oh, well. He shrugged. Sit down, Harris. Thanks. Harris took a chair, stretching his legs out. He watched Watts as he closed the door to the hall. By the way, any more cases come up? Two more today. Watts was grim. Makes almost thirty in all. We have three hundred men in this station. At the rate it's going. Chief, you spoke about a forest on the asteroid. Do you allow the crew to go into the forest at will, or do you restrict them to the buildings and grounds?" Watts rubbed his jaw. Well, it's a difficult situation, Harris. I have to let the men leave the grounds sometime. They can see the forest from the buildings, and as long as you can see a nice place to stretch out and relax, that does it. Once every ten days they have a full period of rest, and then they go out and fool around. And then it happens? Yes, I suppose so, but as long as they can see the forest they'll want to go, I can't help it. I know. I'm not censuring you. Well, what's your theory? What happens to them out there? What do they do? What happens? Once they get out there and take it easy for a while, they don't want to come back and work. It's boondoggling, playing hooky. They don't want to work, so off they go. How about this business of their delusions? Watts laughed good-naturedly. Listen, Harris, you know as well as I do that it's a lot of poppycock. They're no more plants than you or I. They just don't want to work, that's all. When I was a cadet, we had a few ways to make people work. I wish we could lay a few on their backs like we used to. You think this is simple gold-bricking, then? Don't you think it is? No, Harris said. They really believe they're plants. I put them through the high-frequency shock treatment, the shock box. The whole nervous system is paralyzed, all inhibitions stopped cold. They tell the truth, then. 
and they said the same thing, and more. Watts paced back and forth, his hands clasped behind his back. Harris, you're a doctor, and I suppose you know what you're talking about, but look at the situation here. We have a garrison, a good, modern garrison. We're probably the most modern outfit in the system. Every new device and gadget is here that science can produce. Harris, this garrison is one vast machine. The men are parts, and each has his job. The maintenance crew, the biologists, the office crew, the managerial staff. Look what happens when one person steps away from his job. Everything else begins to creak. We can't service the bugs if no one services the machines. We can't order food to feed the crews if no one makes out the reports, takes inventories. We can't direct any kind of activity if the second-in-command decides to go out and sit in the sun all day. Thirty people. One-tenth of the garrison. But we can't run without them. The garrison is built that way. If you take the supports out, the whole building falls. No one can leave. We're all tied here, and these people know it. They know they have no right to do that, run off on their own. No one has that right any more. We're all too tightly interwoven to suddenly start doing what we want. It's unfair to the rest, the majority. Harris nodded. Chief, can I ask you something? What is it? Are there any inhabitants on the asteroid? Any natives? Natives? Watts considered. Yes, there's some kind of aborigines living out there. He waved vaguely toward the window. What are they like? Have you seen them? Yes, I've seen them. At least I saw them when we first came here. They hung around for a while, watching us, then after a time they disappeared. Did they die off? Diseases of some kind? No, they just disappeared into the forest. They're still there someplace. What kind of people are they? Well, the story is that they're originally from Mars, though they don't look much like Martians. They're dark, a kind of coppery color, thin, very agile in their own way. They hunt and fish, no written language. We don't pay much attention to them. I see. Harris paused. Chief, have you ever heard of anything called the Pipers? The Pipers? Watts frowned. No. Why? The patients mentioned something called the Pipers. According to Bradshaw, the Pipers taught him to become a plant. He learned it from them. A kind of teaching. The Pipers? What are they? I don't know, Harris admitted. I thought maybe you might know. My first assumption, of course, was that they're natives. But now I'm not so sure, not after hearing your description of them. The natives are primitive savages. They don't have anything to teach anybody, especially a top-flight biologist. Harris hesitated. Chief, I'd like to go into the woods and look around. Is that possible? Certainly. I can arrange it for you. I'll give you one of the men to show you around. I'd rather go alone. Is there any danger? No, none that I know of, except... Except the Pipers, Harris finished. I know. Well... There's only one way to find them, and that's it. I'll have to take my chances. If you walk in a straight line, Chief Watts said, you'll find yourself back at the garrison in about six hours. It's a damn small asteroid. There's a couple of streams and lakes, so don't fall in. How about snakes or poisonous insects? 
Nothing like that reported. We did a lot of tramping around at first, but it's grown back now the way it was. We never encountered anything dangerous. Thanks, Chief, Harris said. They shook hands. I'll see you before nightfall. Good luck. The Chief and his two armed escorts turned and went back across the rise, down the other side toward the garrison. Harris watched them go until they disappeared inside the building. Then he turned and started into the grove of trees. The woods were very silent around him as he walked. Trees towered up on all sides of him, huge dark green trees like eucalyptus. The ground underfoot was soft with endless leaves that had fallen and rotted into soil. After a while the grove of high trees fell behind, and he found himself crossing a dry meadow. The grass and weeds burned brown in the sun. Insects buzzed around him, rising up from the dry weed stalks. Something scuttled ahead, hurrying through the undergrowth. He caught sight of a gray ball with many legs, scampering furiously, its antenna weaving. The meadow ended at the bottom of a hill. He was going up now, going higher and higher. Ahead of him an endless expanse of green rose, acres of wild growth. He scrambled to the top finally, blowing and panting, catching his breath. He went on. Now he was going down again, plunging into a deep gully. Tall ferns grew as large as trees. He was entering a living Jurassic forest, ferns that stretched out endlessly ahead of him. Down he went, walking carefully. The air began to turn cold around him. The floor of the gully was damp and silent. Underfoot the ground was almost wet. He came out on a level table. It was dark, with the ferns growing up on all sides, dense growths of ferns, silent and unmoving. He came upon a natural path, an old stream-bed, rough and rocky, but easy to follow. The air was thick and oppressive. Beyond the ferns he could see the side of the next hill, a green field rising up. Something gray was ahead. Rocks, piled up boulders, scattered and stacked here and there. The stream-bed led directly to them. Apparently this had been a pool of some kind, a stream emptying from it. He climbed the first of the boulders awkwardly, feeling his way up. At the top he paused, resting again. As yet he had had no luck. So far he had not met any of the natives. It would be through them that he would find the mysterious pipers that were stealing the men away, if such really existed. If he could find the natives, talk to them, perhaps he could find out something. But as yet he had been unsuccessful. He looked around. The woods were very silent. A slight breeze moved through the ferns, rustling them, but that was all. Where were the natives? Probably they had a settlement of some sort, huts, a clearing. The asteroid was small. He should be able to find them by nightfall. He started down the rocks. More rocks rose up ahead, and he climbed them. Suddenly he stopped, listening. Far off he could hear a sound, the sound of water. Was he approaching a pool of some kind? He went on again, trying to locate the sound. He scrambled down the rocks and up rocks, and all around him there was silence except for the splashing of distant water. Maybe a waterfall, water in motion, a stream. If he found the stream, he might find the natives. The rocks ended and the stream bed began again, but this time it was wet. 
the bottom muddy and overgrown with moss. He was on the right track. Not too long ago this stream had flowed, probably during the rainy season. He went up on the side of the stream, pushing through the ferns and vines. A golden snake slid expertly out of his path. Something glinted ahead, something sparkling through the ferns. Water. A pool. He hurried, pushing the vines aside and stepping out, leaving them behind. He was standing on the edge of a pool, a deep pool sunk in a hollow of gray rocks, surrounded by ferns and vines. The water was clear and bright and in motion, flowing in a waterfall at the far end. It was beautiful, and he stood watching, marveling at it, the undisturbed quality of it. Untouched it was, just as it had always been, probably, as long as the asteroid existed. Was he the first to see it? Perhaps. It was so hidden, so concealed by the ferns, it gave him a strange feeling, a feeling almost of ownership. He stepped down a little toward the water, and it was then he noticed her. The girl was sitting on the far edge of the pool, staring down into the water, resting her head on one drawn-up knee. She had been bathing. He could see that at once. Her coppery body was still wet and glistening with moisture, sparkling in the sun. She had not seen him. He stopped, holding his breath, watching her. She was lovely, very lovely, with long, dark hair that wound around her shoulders and arms. Her body was slim, very slender, with a supple grace to it that made him stare, accustomed as he was to various forms of anatomy. How silent she was, silent and unmoving, staring down at the water. Time passed, strange, unchanging time as he watched the girl. Time might even have ceased with the girl sitting on the rock, staring into the water, and the rows of great ferns behind her, as rigid as if they had been painted there. All at once the girl looked up. Harris shifted, suddenly conscious of himself as an intruder. He stepped back. I'm sorry, he murmured. I'm from the garrison. I didn't mean to come poking around. She nodded without speaking. You don't mind? Harris asked presently. No. So she spoke Terran. He moved a little toward her, around the side of the pool. I hope you don't mind my bothering you. I won't be on the asteroid very long. This is my first day here. I just arrived from Terra. She smiled faintly. I'm a doctor, Henry Harris. He looked down at her, at the slim, coppery body gleaming in the sunlight, a faint sheen of moisture on her arms and thighs. You might be interested in why I'm here. He paused. Maybe you can even help me. She looked up a little. Oh? Would you like to help me? She smiled. Yes, of course. That's good. Mind if I sit down? He looked around and found himself a flat rock. He sat down slowly, facing her. Cigarette? No. Well, I'll have one. He lit up, taking a deep breath. You see, we have a problem at the garrison. Something has been happening to some of the men, and it seems to be spreading. We have to find out what causes it, or we won't be able to run the garrison. He waited for a moment. She nodded slightly. How silent she was, silent and unmoving, like the ferns. Well, I've been able to find out a few things from them, and one very interesting fact stands out, 
They keep saying that something called, called the Pipers are responsible for their condition. They say the Pipers taught them. He stopped. A strange look had flitted across her dark, small face. Do you know the Pipers? She nodded. Acute satisfaction flooded over Harris. You do? I was sure the natives would know. He stood up again. I was sure they would, if the Pipers really existed. Then they do exist, do they? They exist. Harris frowned. And they're here, in the woods? Yes. I see. He ground his cigarette out impatiently. You don't suppose there's any chance you could take me to them, do you? Take you? Yes, I have this problem, and I have to solve it. You see, the base commander on Terra has assigned this to me, this business about the Pipers. It has to be solved, and I'm the one assigned to the job. So it's important to me to find them. Do you see? Do you understand? She nodded. Well, will you take me to them? The girl was silent. For a long time she sat, staring down into the water, resting her head against her knee. Harris began to become impatient. He fidgeted back and forth, resting first on one leg and then on the other. Well, will you? he said again. It's important to the whole garrison. What do you say? He felt around in his pockets. Maybe I could give you something. What do I have? He brought out his lighter. I could give you my lighter. The girl stood up, rising slowly, gracefully, without motion or effort. Harris's mouth fell open. How supple she was, gliding to her feet in a single motion. He blinked. Without effort she had stood, seemingly without change. All at once she was standing instead of sitting, standing and looking calmly at him, her small face expressionless. Will you? he said. Yes, come along. She turned away, moving toward the row of ferns. Harris followed quickly, stumbling across the rocks. Fine, he said. Thanks a lot. I'm very interested to meet these pipers. Where are you taking me? To your village? How much time do we have before nightfall? The girl did not answer. She had entered the ferns already, and Harris quickened his pace to keep from losing her. How silently she glided. Wait, he called. Wait for me. The girl paused, waiting for him, slim and lovely, looking silently back. He entered the ferns, hurrying after her. Well, I'll be damned, Commander Cox said. It sure didn't take you long. He leaped down the steps two at a time. Let me give you a hand. Harris grinned, lugging his heavy suitcases. He set them down and breathed a sigh of relief. It isn't worth it, he said. I'm going to give up taking so much. Come on inside, soldier. Give him a hand. A patrolman hurried over and took one of the suitcases. The three men went inside and down the corridor to Harris's quarters. Harris unlocked the door and the patrolman deposited his suitcase inside. Thanks, Harris said. He set the other down beside it. It's good to be back, even for a little while. A little while? I just came back to settle my affairs. I have to return to Y-3 tomorrow morning. Then you didn't solve the problem? I solved it, but I haven't cured it. I'm going back and get to work right away. There's a lot to be done. But you found out what it is. Yes, 
It was just what the men said. The Pipers. The Pipers do exist? Yes, Harris nodded. They do exist. He removed his coat and put it over the back of the chair. Then he went to the window and let it down. Warm spring air rushed into the room. He settled himself on the bed, leaning back. The Pipers exist all right, in the minds of the garrison crew. To the crew, the Pipers are real. The crew created them. It's a mass hypnosis, a group projection, and all the men there have it, to some degree. How did it start? Those men on Y-3 were sent there because they were skilled, highly trained men with exceptional ability. All their lives they've been schooled by complex modern society, fast tempo and high integration between people. Constant pressure toward some goal, some job to be done. Those men are put down suddenly on an asteroid where there are natives living the most primitive of existence, completely vegetable lives. No concept of goal, no concept of purpose, and hence no ability to plan. The natives live the way the animals live, from day to day, sleeping, picking food from the trees. A kind of Garden of Eden existence without struggle or conflict. So, but... Each of the garrison crew sees the natives and unconsciously thinks of his own early life when he was a child, when he had no worries, no responsibilities, before he joined modern society, a baby lying in the sun. But he can't admit this to himself. He can't admit that he might want to live like the natives, to lie and sleep all day, so he invents the pipers. The idea of a mysterious group living in the woods who trap him, lead him into their kind of life. Then he can blame them, not himself. They teach him to become a part of the woods. What are you going to do? Have the woods burned? No. Harris shook his head. That's not the answer. The woods are harmless. The answer is psychotherapy for the men. That's why I'm going right back so I can begin work. They've got to be made to see that the Pipers are inside them, their own unconscious voices calling to them to give up their responsibilities. They've got to be made to realize that there are no Pipers, at least not outside themselves. The woods are harmless, and the natives have nothing to teach anyone. They're primitive savages without even a written language. We're seeing a psychological projection by a whole garrison of men who want to lay down their work and take it easy for a while. The room was silent. I see, Cox said presently. Well, it makes sense. He got to his feet. I hope you can do something with the men when you get back. I hope so, too, Harris agreed. And I think I can. After all, it's just a question of increasing their self-awareness. When they have that, the Pipers will vanish. Cox nodded. Well, you go ahead with your unpacking, Doc. I'll see you at dinner, and maybe before you leave tomorrow. Fine. Harris opened the door, and the commander went out into the hall. Harris closed the door after him, and then went back across the room. He looked out the window for a moment, his hands in his pockets. It was becoming evening. The air was turning cool. The sun was just setting as he watched, disappearing behind the buildings of the city surrounding the hospital. He watched it go down. Then he went over to his two suitcases. He was tired very tired from his trip. A great weariness was beginning to descend over him. There were so many things to do, so terribly many. How could he hope to do them all? Back to the asteroid, and then what? 
He yawned, his eyes closing. How sleepy he was. He looked over at the bed. Then he sat down on the edge of it and took his shoes off. So much to do, the next day. He put his shoes in the corner of the room. Then he bent over, unsnapping one of the suitcases. He opened the suitcase. From it he took a bulging gunny sack. Carefully he emptied the contents of the sack out on the floor. Dirt. Rich, soft dirt. Dirt he had collected during his last hours there. Dirt he had carefully gathered up. When the dirt was spread out on the floor, he sat down in the middle of it. He stretched himself out, leaning back. When he was fully comfortable, he folded his hands across his chest and closed his eyes. So much work to do. But later on, of course, tomorrow. How warm the dirt was. He was sound asleep in a moment. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm a plant named Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Evan. And we're going to talk about Piper in the Woods, which was a short story by Philip K. Dick, first published in Imagination, February 1950. Uh-oh, my eyes are gone. 1953? 53? Yeah, so this is his, uh, this is one of his first stories uh, published. Uh, 52, I think, was his first story, but this is barely into 53. And uh, did you guys happen to see the PDF uh, I sent you? No. Okay. Well, the good news is it came with, on the inside front cover of Imagination, February 1953, an introduction uh, or introducing the author and Philip K. Dick. And you see a very, very young Philip K. Dick holding his chin and looking into the camera. And he writes a tiny little essay about himself, which I will read. (laughs) Once, when I was very young, I came across a magazine directly below the comic books called Stirring Science Stories. I bought it, finally, and carried it home, reading it along the way. Here were ideas, vital and imaginative. Men moving across the universe, down into subatomic particles, into time. There was no limit. I just love that when he ends sentences. Uh, One society, one one given environment was transcended. STF, by which he meant um, science fiction, which is what they called it before they called it science fiction. STF was Faustian. It carried a person up and beyond. I was 12 years old then. But I saw in STF the same thing I see now, a medium in which the full play of human imagination can operate, ordered. Uh, Ordered, of course, by reason and consistent development. Over the years, STF has grown, matured towards greater social awareness and responsibility. I became interested in writing STF when I saw it emerge from the ray gun stage into studies of man in various types and complexities of society. I enjoy writing STF. It is essentially communication between myself and others as interested as I in knowing where present forces are taking us. My wife and my cat, Magnificat, (laughs) are a little worried about my preoccupation with STF. Like most STF readers, I have files and stacks of magazines, boxes of notes and data parts of unfinished stories, a huge desk full of related materials in various stages. The neighbors say I seem to, quote-unquote, read and write quite a lot. 
but I think we will see our devotion pay off. We may yet live to be present when the public libraries begin to carry the STF magazines and someday perhaps even the school libraries. Philip K. Dick. Wow, that's so wow. cool. I miss I missed you sending that to us entirely. Wow. Me too. Oh, well, you should definitely check it out because in addition to it having that great little intro and a picture of a very young Philip K. Dick talking about his cat named Magnificat. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. <laughs> it also has a, a, a beautiful illustration. Um, I, I think I put it in the YouTube uh, audio if you guys saw that of uh, a lady sitting on a tree log, um, nakedly bathing her foot while in the bushes, <laughs> a <laughs> scientist stares at her. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, that's in that the Gu- yeah, that's in the Gutenberg version, yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Which gets into a couple things I want to talk about. Yeah, the this is, this is a crazy story. And um, hmm. I, I've got a post, I'm going to dig it up, for years... I've been baffled by this story. Like, uh, like I just do not... I, I could not understand what the hell is going on. Because it, it's not a normal story. I, I don't know if you guys know this. <laughs> it's really weird. And I tried to find anybody who uh, had a, a, a take. I, I'm sure, I at the time, had a take that I could um, grok, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, I, I read through Goodreads again last night, and I didn't see anybody say anything that <laughs> made it make sense to me. But uh, this is what I wrote back in 2012 about this story. This is a Philip K. Dick story that I'm totally baffled by. I don't get it. Can someone please explain <laughs> to me what I'm missing? Why don't I understand what Philip K. Dick was getting at? There has to be a key somewhere that fits the lock that will dis- decode the meaning that Piper in the Woods hides within itself. Right? Right? Help! No response. <laughs> Aww. Yeah. A little plea out to the ether. No one answers. But I started I started getting ideas, I guess, about this last year. Um, and I, I think I've got some really good ideas, but I... I'm also pretty sure they're crazy because I had I had dreams all last night about like <laughs> what's going on in this story and there was a I don't know some sort of adaptation that had a scene that was not in the in the story and oh it's it's crazy. Did you watch an adaptation or did you no, see this in I the just saw trailer? There's two, tra- there's two trailers, one for a French version and one for a, a non-French version, and I didn't find either of them captured what I think is the tone of this story. But mm-hmm. what, what, what did you guys think of those trailers? I'd like to see the entire films, actually. Mm. I, I thought the it, French one looked really angry. Yeah, <laughs> like very the, angry. The scientist is just, like, yelling at people all the time. There is a little what bit is of the pipers? Yeah, there's a little yelling in the story with um, the, the boss getting mad at the doctor. You know, mm-hmm. you need to solve this right now. And, oh, oh yes, sir, yes, sir. That's that's about the entire extent of the anger. The rest is it's quite funny. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the other trailer it didn't it only really showed like a few glimpses of visuals. Like I don't I didn't really get enough no. from the uh, non-French one to tell how they were gonna take the story. I went and listened to Evan your episode nine on your Philip K. Dick uh, podcast. Oh, that's episode nine. That's so early. I know it's so early, um, and. Uh, 
Of course, your take is completely different from mine. I didn't think about it being a labor story at all um, when I read it before. And I, I totally see that now, of course, because it totally uh-huh. is a, about that. But Well, um, it's, it's, it's labor. So here, here's the tension I see in this is um, now... I put the, I, this uh, refusal of work tradition. It's kind of part of the anarchist tradition. Some Marxists have this idea, too. And it's all post-scarcity philosophy, essentially. Mm. right? Um, one of the first to argue this was uh, Paul Lafargue, the right to be lazy. So he was a Cuban-born French revolutionary Marxist. And he, he challenges kind of the, the right to work, the full employment argument, with basically... The working class created wealth, created the conditions of post-scarcity through their labor. This is labor theory of value, and therefore they should enjoy leisure out of that, right? They, they shouldn't just – that's part of the wages of their – of the value they created. And then some other anarchists talk about this. Bob Black most maybe famously recently. Even Bertrand Russell wrote an essay that kind of had that same argument that you know we should reinvest productivity into leisure. But these are post-scarcity arguments. But this story is not a post-scarcity world. Um, There's all this stress that everyone has to do their part. Yeah. Because the, this, it's, it's not on Earth. It's on the frontier. It's like on the asteroid, right? So everyone has to do their part. And there's several passages where the, it's insisting, no, we, we can't have people opting out. So it reminded me actually more of like Roanoke, the, the Croatan. Mm-hmm. Going to Croatan, as it's sometimes called, right? Because their work, that was a frontier situation where work was necessary for the colony to survive. Of course, they drop the people off. Is it Raleigh? I think it's Raleigh, right? Drops the people off. He comes back and they're gone. And we don't know what happened to them. And one theory is that they just went and lived with the Indians. Mm-hmm. The Croatan were and, the people, and that's right? What you have here. You have the piper in the woods. They're the, they're kind of like the Indians. They're mm-hmm. they're of nature. The way kind of the American ideology about Indians is that they're they're sort of of nature. But it's you know I I'm kind of inspired by this anti-work tradition. But Dick's very insistent in the story that work here is necessary. It's not a post-scarcity world, really. There there are I, I noticed in your review. Uh, mm-hmm. on, uh, you mentioned the robot, and I mm-hmm. I don't think I ever noticed the robot before because it's barely there. Um, but actually, when I reread it again very closely, there's actually two robots. There's uh, a robot that directs him to uh, a bedroom uh, or a dorm room, and then there's mm-hmm. another robot that uh, shows up and does basically the same job, just you know answers a question or suggests a direction or something like that and i was like well that it's set in a science fiction future right so they have robots but um maybe that is a case that a lot of their jobs can be replaced um isn't my imagination to say somewhere in here that earth doesn't have trees anymore yeah that's that's a big part of it there's this um I don't Completely know, this drive for, for ecology, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this drive for nature. I mean, I mean, the, the evolutionary argument here is kind of interesting because let's say we do destroy all the trees, right? We still evolved in a world where with, with, with trees and nature and green, we're still going to find green beautiful because that's probably somewhat in our evolutionary past. It's not just cultural. Mm-hmm. No, no, no it, it, yeah, that's why we like lawns so much. Mm. Yeah. It reminds us of savannah grasses. 
Or even, I, I, saw, I, I think this was just a YouTube video I was watching, but the most beautiful trees, if you look throughout, if you just scan art across the world, the most beautiful trees are ones that can be climbed. Because mm. mm. you're running away from the lions mm. or whatever in the savannas of East Africa. You know, there, for, there's um, an item in here for, at least a couple items in here for our uh, redderizer, if we ever get around to uh, working on it, but... That's, that seems like a lot of work. Let's just go out in the sun <laughs> instead. Um, uh, one of the first things I ever noticed in Philip K. Dick is, is, you know, those things that come up again and again, is his obsession with cedar trees. And they're in here. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I assume that somewhere in, you know, maybe his, his in-law's house, uh, you know, in the hills outside of San Francisco, there was a beautiful driveway leading up to a house and cedar trees because that story um, upon the dull earth is it's just a beautiful description of you know sort of the Pacific Northwest kind of trees and he doesn't need to he doesn't need to have all that for the story that he's telling there it could have been set pretty much anywhere but he's got this obsession with trees that that's here and this whole uh, asteroid is uh, you know beautiful that's it's orbiting Jupiter which I may be significant um, but uh, I have a massive theory that I, I haven't I kept searching trying to find anybody to back me up but all I've got is is my idea and I want to spill it for you Are you ready mm-hmm. okay yeah. okay so the Pipers is never it's never explained. <laughs> Who they are. Um, I assume that the girl is a piper. Um, she says uh, he, he's. Uh, let's see. Uh, what's her hero named? Doctor Harris. Harris. Doctor Harris. Yeah. He says to the girl, "Can you take me to um, to the pipers, or do you know about the pipers?" And she, he thinks she's a native, right? I don't think that there is another separate group. Uh, necessarily than uh, the natives and the pipers. I think they could be the same thing. No, uh, no, they're not, because it, they, they specifically say the natives are originally Martians who came to the asteroid. And that's, yeah, but he also says something about the, they don't look very much like them. Right. Yeah, right. It's, like, it's almost like folklore or something. Yeah, and I mean, how would they get there? <laughs> I mean, maybe the well, Martians I'm, have technology. We don't know anything really about what's going no, on. No, no, Mars is always not mentioned. Yeah, I, I think folklore is definitely a possibility. Um, but uh, I guess the idea here came from looking at that il- the illustration and thinking about what happens in the story, and then also thinking about about how many times in these very, very early stories we get um, fantasy stories masquerading as science fiction stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so my the one I you know really got into Philip K. Dick from was his first published story called Beyond Lies the Wub, which is uh, about a spaceship that lands on Mars and picks up a bunch of animals that they're going to eat. Um, basically, they steal them from the natives, and the natives trick uh, trick the crew into taking on board a wub and the wub turns out to be a talking pig basically and uh ends up killing the captain and eating him basically is what happens a very ambiguous sort of ending but that's pretty much my theory on it and it's the the 
the pig at one point talks about Odysseus, which is kind of weird. <laughs> he also starts talking about philosophy and, and uh, you know, being a vegetarian and all that stuff. So it's a very, very strange, weird story. Philip K. Dick's this weird, strange guy. Um, but he does this again and again, where he, he talks about the ancient Greeks, just randomly in science fiction stories. There's a story I did on Reading Short and Deep very recently called Strange Eden. I'm sure, um, Evan, you did a show yeah, on it. Right. Um, Strange Eden is essentially a retelling of Circe's story, uh, or maybe just a sequel to Circe's story from the Odyssey, where you've got Circe living on a... a, a on a planet, beautiful planet, with lots of trees, and there's animals all over the island, or sorry, the planet, um, that are all tame, and they're fierce normally, they're, you know, lions and wolves and that sort of thing, but she has tamed them. And then this brutish dude comes uh, on, he's about to kill one of the lions, and realizes that they're tame, and continues on, meets her, and he tries to rape her, and she tames him. Um, and at the end of the story, he's been transformed into one of these tamed animals. The only reason you know it's Circe is because at one point we meet her brother briefly, who, whose name is Aetes, who is the brother of Circe. So I didn't put that together until, you know, I don't know, second or third reading, because I was just, what the hell's going on? This is barely science fiction. It really has nothing to do with anything, right? It's because he's obsessed with this story of Circe, and he's, He's sort of retelling it in his own way. And he does this a lot with uh, stories like um, uh, the one with Bubber. Bubber the Blubber Boy. Um, where he's retelling Hansel and Gretel, but without Gretel. Or he's he, he, t he takes a, um, a story from his own early youth and he retells it. In fact, one of his, his first stories he wrote was uh, a sequel to Gulliver's Travels, right? Uh -huh. I think it was Return to Lilliput was the name of it. So in this one, I was I I, I thought, well, may, wait a minute, maybe the the um, natives and the way she's depicted and the relationship they have with plants, maybe they're dryads. Mm, maybe. And here's here's the thing, right? There's a kind of dryad called a hamadryad where the they're they're tied to the kind of dryad is not just living in the forest, but is its individual spirit is tied to a particular tree. And Earth has been deforested. And these this planet is was actually slightly disforested at the beginning. Do you remember they said when they were building the base, they uh, knocked down a bunch of stuff and then it's it's all bounced back and recovered. Um, it's almost like if they if they're if they're not these natives are not like the woman the one woman we see right who's nameless as far as I can tell um, the one woman we see if she's not uh, the piper themselves then who is the who are the pipers well there's another relationship that dryads have which is with Pan and the Peniski yeah. right and Pan is a piper. That's his whole thing, the pipes of Pan, right? And what do they panic? Call you? What do they call you? Panic, absolutely. But here it's the opposite. They, they, he, Pan was a consort to, uh, or some dryads were consort to him and his tutors, right? So there's some sort of weird island 
uh, this is like an island in space, I guess. Is the, uh, there's no reason that this planet is all forested uh, or <laughs> satellite. No, it's it's it's, yeah, a, it's, it's an asteroid, asteroid that has Earth Jupiter, gravity. Yeah. Right? It's, it's and, and it's hot enough that it, it it's just not science fiction in the sense of paying attention to science. So he's working all sorts of extra angles to try and get this story going. And then it is more like a fantasy masquerading as science fiction. It's just, I think it's a fantasy set in a science fiction universe, if that makes sense. So I think that that's a real way of cracking uh, what the hell is going on and why is he doing it this way? Because why are they called Pipers? Never revealed. Well, I have a different theory. Please. Um, I was thinking of the Pied Piper of mm. Hamlin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it would sort of like buy into that same thing where he could be like retelling something because the people are being lured away and they're not coming back. Um, and... And then when I looked it up as well, there is like a version of that story where the people, the children are lured into a forest mm-hmm. rather than into a cave. And the other thing that was making me think that is, did you notice like when, when the soldiers or the doctor or whatever happens to them in the forest that um, turns them into maybe a piper or mm-hmm. into a plant, um, they don't seem to really turn into a plant like they it seems like they die like they lie down on the dirt and cross their hands over their chest like their bodies mm-hmm. um like they're dying and then it was making me think also of um of withered apples mm, yeah where that's the tree one of the other ones i was thinking about yeah and that that's the same thing like the tree like beckons her away and then at the end of the story um once she's been infected she also dies and is in the ground. And maybe that forest on that asteroid is just all dead people. Yes, absolutely. There's mm-hmm. some sort of tie to oh. the, the the trees being... So one of the things we never see the patients, you know, the victims, the plants, the plant people do is eat. So I was thinking, you know, right. he, he says, you need to be out in the sun. What would happen to you, doctor, if you... Didn't have air. It's the same thing, right? So it, yeah. And then, of course, we get the scene at the end with the dirt, right? So he needs the dirt and he needs sunlight <laughs> and maybe a little water because that lady's been dipped in the water, right? It might be that there... The, I mean, the other thing that this story works as, right, is another one of Philip K. Dick's strange invasion stories, right? Which he has yeah. all the time, right? Yeah. And it, this is actually a, con, a contamination... Uh, that they're trying to prevent. Um, That's why I was thinking of, of withered apples as well, because I was mm-hmm. like, is this before of withered apples? Like, is this how the infection or whatever it is, the <laughs> the plant invasion comes to Terra? I think they, he's definitely working the same idea, but I don't think they're the same universe. <laughs> <laughs> or if they are, they're, they're unrelated plant schemes. It's a loose a loose connection, yeah. Very loose. Um but That's, they do bring it back to Terra, right? The, yeah. This, rather yeah, no, than keep them in this garrison. He's on his way to Earth to, uh, you know, spread the, spread the gospel, as it were. Paul, I'm sure you noticed the line about Tiberius in here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. The like, emperor Tiberius felt about Christianity infecting the upper regions of the Roman Empire. That's a little anachronistic. The uh, The upper echelons of the Roman Empire didn't go 
Christian until after Tiberius, but I did appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I'll read that line here. It's on page 95. Fine, Cox turned and stared towards the hospital. Oh, sorry, sorry. Started towards the hospital. Show me anything you've got. This is serious now. I know how Tiberius felt when Christianity showed up in high places. And I, I was thinking about what Christianity was meaning. Probably it was the slaves, right? The household slaves of of the uh, of yeah, it was of the royal class, family, la- the imperial yeah, family. Phrase. Yeah, those are the ones that were that first. Uh, and then they start teaching the kids, right? Because they're the tutors, <laughs> and and even if they don't teach them directly, they the kids are witnessing the people go off and have these these ceremonies where they eat bits of uh, bread and say that's Jesus, right? And then they it, it it's got this whole philosophy behind it, which is the opposite. I mean, that's the whole thing that's so cool about. Uh, you guys get into Nietzsche at all? You guys? No, yes. it, no, no, that's a that that's a that's a that's that's a Nietzsche sort of uh, interest. <laughs> no, it's it's really interesting, Paul. He he has this thing. Nietzsche has this thing where he calls uh, Christianity a slave morality, and it sounds like a slur. And I thought it was a slur at first, and it is a slur in a sense, but actually it's the opposite morality of the Roman mythology, or the Roman morality. So Roman morality is, hey, uh, there's those guys in France, the Gauls, let's go get them, right? And they go get them, they rape them, and they bring them home and sell them, right? And they say, this is good. (laughs) And those slaves who've been taken, right, are brought, and they say, that was bad. My dad got killed, Uh, I've been raped, and I'm now in property. This is bad. So they have opposite starting points, right? The Romans are saying, no, no, that's good. Now, I, I wouldn't want it to happen to me, but that's okay because I'm in charge, right? And the slave says, um, well, whatever you think is good can't be right because it hurt me real bad, and I don't like that. So I'm going to take the opposite tack, right? The meek shall inherit the earth. Oh, man, that works for me. I'm meek now. I'm a slave in this household. My family was laid waste and I've been uh, robbed of my dignity and it is only in the fertile soil, the blood soaked soil of the Roman brutal morality that a slave morality like Christianity can be so flourishing, right? So in the modern day we've got all these um, uh, and I guess they had them back then too, but we've got all these uh, supposedly Christian countries going around the world killing everybody all the time. Why do they do that? Well, it's not in keeping with their Jesus beliefs, right? Because Jesus is all about turning the other cheek. And, you know, if you get mad, you get mad at the moneylenders. Don't get mad at the uh, the uh, the invading army. You, you say that that is going to be their punishment in heaven, right? So it, there's a whole cool thing about how it is only in a in a in the empire that's built on slavery that a religion like Christianity could be built, and of course it gets subsumed and becomes the Holy Roman Empire. It's a fascinating turn, but that kind of turn is actually happening here, right? What's so cool about um, seeing this story basically from Doctor whatever his name? What's his name again? Harris. Harris. Dr. Harris's point of view is that he he's developing this whole theory, right? But all the, along the way, we're getting set up for this twist ending where 
when he opens those suitcases, presumably he knows what's in them, right? He starts dumping the gunny sack uh, <laughs> full of dirt onto the floor, but he has all these plans, and he just gave a big theory about why he's, uh, you know, what's going on in the minds of the men and how they're going to solve it, right? Is he lying there when he's mm. telling it to his boss? Or is is this, like, it's so, such a deeply interesting psychological story that there's something going on deep inside the psychology of the, the people. And, I, and one of the dreams I had last night was that this was a, a uh, it wasn't about turning into a plant. It was about switching genders. And I started uh, reading it this morning again. And I was thinking, every time you see the word um, plant, replace it with the word woman. And of course, there are females turning into men as well in this story too, right? With there's uh, uh, 20 people or 30 people, and oh yeah, here it is: 16 men and four women sat in the sun along the bank, none of them moving and none speaking. It's not. I'm pretty sure this is not a story about gender uh, swapping, right, or gender trans transitioning. But if you start reading it uh, as without those words in there, without the word plant in there it becomes almost the exact same sort of psychological phenomenon. Um, well, Corporal Westerberg, Dr. Henry Harris said gently, just why do you think you're a woman? <laughs> right? Well, as, he <laughs> as he spoke, Harris glanced down again at the card on his desk. It was from the base commander himself, made out in Cox's heavy scrawl. Doc, this is the lad I told you about. Talk to him and try to find out how he got this delusion. He's from the new garrison on the new check station at Asteroid Y3, and we don't want anything to go wrong there, especially a silly damn thing like this. This is a strange phenomenon that's really sort of revealing itself uh, just in the last 10 years, right? That a lot of people are starting to transition. Mm -hmm. how, is it ha how is the psychological phenomena happening inside their mind? I barely have access to my own psychological happenings. This is a story that's about a mysterious transformation that happens within people. How do how does one suddenly become a Christian when one's been a Roman uh, religionist well, all yes. this time? But I think it's more about identity, like that. Well, at least in like Tara's case and and our like world, it's about they have always been that identity, but society has seen them a different. Well, that's what so they're only transit. That's what people say, <clears throat> right? But, but I don't, I don't, I don't believe that that's in the experience of the people I've had who who are transitioning or whatever. Um, that is not the experience they seem to pre present. Yeah, I think it can be both. I, I honestly don't know what's going on, um, but I don't think that a lot of people under like just knowing my own psychology. Um, mm -hmm. And how hard it is to understand why I'm motivated to do things, um, or think things, or why things are happening. I, I just thought it was interesting. It, it, obviously, this is not a story about. It, if it was by Heinlein, it would be a story about uh, switching <laughs> genders. It's not. I don't think. Um, even in a story like this, where it's mostly not about it, we we get a few bosom shots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just casually thrown in there. Uh, Although at least I think in this one. It's not just the woman. He he does it to the dude as well. I think yep, he's like, yep. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. yes, and that's the other thing is is there is a 
a movement thing, a beauty of grace of movement. I have yeah. Uh, I have a, a a lot of highlights here. This is on page ninety-five and uh, third paragraph. That woman, that brunette with short hair, career woman, head of the entire office staff on garrison, uh, uh, of the garrison, all the and that man beside her, janitor, and that cute little gal there with the bosom, <laughs> <laughs> secretly just out of school. Oh no, sorry, secretary just out of school. All kinds. And I got a note this morning. Three more are coming in sometime today. Um, this is, I think, an invasion story. I, I have a different theory. Yeah, I go for it, Paul. Different, I have a completely different theory as how this works. So when I, when I, was, when I, when I read this story, I had read it a long time ago and reread the story for you, you guys and listened to it. I listened to it twice. I came up with a different set of mythological reference and a different idea of what's actually going on. Uh-huh. So I was, cool. thinking of, I was thinking of two different Greek myths. I was thinking of the myths of Endemion and the myths of Asatian. Masset, uh, Endemion is the uh, is the Greek dude who fell in love with the goddess of the moon, and she puts him to sleep, so he just sleeps and dreams forever, so she can just watch him while he sleeps at night, and that's all he ever does for all of eternity. He just sleeps, and she just watches him, and that's their that's their weird relationship. There's, I I first came across this in a video game where if you step wrong, wrong as Endemion, you wind up falling asleep forever. And I always annoyed that. So whenever we played the game, I always made sure I didn't step on the wrong square. But that's a slightly different thing. So and then there's the myth of Asatian. Um, you guys all know who Artemis or Diana is, right? Mm-hmm. So the myth of Asatian is Asatian was this hunter. He goes in the woods. He's he's you know, a big conquering Greek hero. He's doing his thing. He's and then he glimpses Artemis by a pool. And mm-hmm. Artemis is not happy with this. And so Artemis and he and the guy's got his hunting hounds with him because, you know, as you do. So Artemis decides to turn him into a stag. And so he gets turned into a stag and well, the his dogs run him down and kill him. So so when I when I when I was reading this, I was thinking, okay, this is a mixture of the two things. What I think the Pipers have been doing, and this ties in with the with the with the, with the Martians. Assuming the Martians were Mar- were in fact Martians that have come to come to the planet and have just been absorbed. I think this is not invasion so much as this is defense of the asteroid by the Pipers. So these humans and before the Martians have come into the asteroid, they're clearing places, they're building build basis and so what do you do the pipers basically are quelling them by making them psychologically into plants what are these plants doing all day they're just sitting in the sun they're not doing anything and at night they sleep they've basically neutralized them as a Mm -hmm. colonial imperialistic threat to their asteroid they can't conquer this asteroid if everyone gets turned into a plant they'll just they'll just wind up just living in the woods just like the Martians and the Pipers can have the asteroid back to themselves. So they're Mm -hmm. not invading the Earth. They're basically trying to resist the invasion and colonization of the Earth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. But here's my take on this. I I mean, I I probably tend towards the pan theory of all the ones um, stated. Um, but that's for me not my main interest in this story. They these characters, these workers on this asteroid, they're infected already, mm-hmm. and with the work ethic, the valorization of work is there. And I think 
that's being negated in a way. And they're being inoculated from the work ethic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, I don't, I don't know the word for that exactly. Maybe in that sense it is, kind of, it is changing the worldview or whatever, but there's a whole ideology here about the necessity of work, the value of work, mm-hmm. right? And I, I just see that every day of my life. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you talk to anyone here in China and like the idea of not working, I mean, full employment is is part of the ruling ideology mm-hmm. here. And if not, if you're not working, you're not valuable. In a way, if you're not in the labor market, you're you're diminished. Mm-hmm. And that's a slave morality. I mean, Nietzsche actually wrote about work. He, he um, this is actually the Wikipedia article on the refusal of work. For, Nietzsche said this. Behind the glorification of work and the tireless talk of the blessings of work, I find the same thought is behind the praise of impersonal activity for public benefit, the fear of everything individual. Right. So work is the collective idea. Mm-hmm. And so there's mm-hmm. this, um, I mean, both from the, both, you have this delusion both on the right and the left that, that work somehow gives meaning. Right. And that's what these characters had coming to that. And it, it's ideologically imposed. Because when they say, I'm a plant, the pe- people in power say, oh, you, you must work, right? The whole society, the whole system re- requires you to work, right? And that's, that's the delusion they've been cured of mm-hmm. by the Pipers. I think uh, that's wholly compatible, um, mm-hmm. indeed, with, um, with, with everything we're seeing in the story. Uh, and and the thing is, is it, it it is highly important for Philip K. Dick to to talk about it in here. So he's definitely talking about it. There's so many things going on, and I love that there's like uh, it just story is intriguing to me because I, I'm just baffled by it con- continuously. Right? It's it's just it it doesn't tell you what it's doing. It's just doing stuff, and then you're mm-hmm. left to interpret it. So uh, here's some random stuff going on in here. Um, this is uh, on page 90, uh, so second page of the, the text. Um, and he's describing um, our first victim, uh, Westerberg. Westerberg was a good-looking chap, actually handsome in his patrol uniform, a shock of blonde hair over one eye. He was tall, almost six feet, a fine, healthy lad, just two years out of training. According to the card... Born in Detroit, he had measles when he was nine, interested in jet engines, tennis, and girls. 26 years old. Um, so I, I noticed things come up again and again, right? So we've got this description of him, and he's blonde, which is it's relatively unusual for men. Um, and then uh, <laughs> it's the most bizarro conversation. And if you think about it in context, it sounds like it's a comedy, like, if you were adapting this, and and the way they adapted it on what looked like both of the movie adaptations, they're not doing it as a comedy, but it is a comedy. Uh, listen to this. Well, Corporal Westerberg, Dr. Harris said again, why do you think you're a plant? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the corporal looked up shyly. He cleared his throat. Sir, I am a plant. I don't just think so. I've been a plant for several days now. <laughs> I love it. It's just several days. And then the doctor <laughs> says, I see. <laughs> Let's laugh it off, right? Um, so when we we continue on, um, uh, the Commander Cox uh, rings him up and, and listen to the description of Commander Cox. 
A moment later, beefy, good-natured face of base commander appeared. Uh, he's beefy. Um, then I found this. Um, this is uh, on page 91. Yes, just sit in the sun. Then at nightfall, he would come back in. When they asked why he wasn't working in the jet repair building, he told them he had to be out in the sun. Then he said, uh, Cox hesitated, yes, said what? He said that work was unnatural, that it was a waste of time, that the only worthwhile thing was to sit and contemplate outside. So they're not actually doing nothing. They just look like they're doing nothing, right? Enjoying the sun, basically. Um, but this is the jet repair is his job, right? And he was interested in jet engines, hence his studying and joining the military. Um, and then uh, they asked him how he got that idea, and then he revealed to them that he had become a plant. Um, this is on the next column over, um, on page 91, on the paragraph starting Harris. Two nurses passed hurrying by. So there's the first females who show up, right? Westberg was quartered with a buddy, a man who had been injured in a jet blast and who was now almost recovered. Harris came to the dorm wing and stopped, checking the numbers on the doors. So the guy he's being housed with was injured, injured in a jet blast. This guy's been working on jets, right? Next page, page 92. The door opened, and this is the... the uh, boy who was injured in a jet blast, who's his roommate, or man who's his roommate. The door opened. A bovine youth with horned-rimmed glasses looked out, a book in his hand. And then we've got a little bit of dialogue between Westberg and uh, uh, the uh, roommate, who doesn't have a name. And then the guy said, uh, the roommate says, Sir, the bovine youth said, I'm afraid I can't wake him up for blah, 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 blah. So... We're getting these descriptions of people, right? This guy is a boy who looks like a cow <laughs> or, yeah. or a, a bull. And he's he's got glasses. What kind? Horned-rimmed glasses, right? So I think that this is Philokadic coding in. He's saying, look, um, this is he's basically I'm, I'm doing fantasy right now. Um, and then just to, just to make it even better, all right, uh, better. Um, Sir, Corporal Westerberg won't wake up. Not after the sun sets. He just won't. He can't be wakened. And then the doctor says, cataleptic? So it's like, cattle. am I going crazy here or is he putting this in on purpose? Right? No, I noticed that as well. No, yeah, I think he's using that the, the language on purpose. And yeah. then, listen to the description of, um, uh, this is, uh, on, again, on 92, uh, top of the second column. It was a warm, sunny day. The sky was almost free of clouds, and gentle wind moved through the cedars along the bank of the stream. There was a path leading from the hospital building down the slope to the stream. At the stream, a small bridge led over to the other side, and a few patients were standing on the bridge, wrapped in their bathrobes, looking aimlessly down at the water. And then we skip down a bit. And Westerberg opened his eyes, looking up. He smiled and got slowly to his feet, a graceful, flowing motion that was rather surprising for a man of his size. Hello, doctor, what brings you here? He's he's already adopted their beauti beautiful, graceful movements, right? Mm. He is the girl, right? The girl is him in the sense that he... What, 
What color are... Remember what color these uh, these natives are? Copper colored, right? Yeah. They're, yeah. The reason they're out in the sun is they're sunbathers. Right? <laughs> they're, getting, they're getting the copper tone on. And they're beautiful. And it's, imagine you're Philip K. Dick. You're on your way to your, uh, your writing shack. <laughs> and you walk by the beach. <laughs> and you see all these people who are not working, just laying on the beach, getting sun, you know, looking at the water, laying on the beach, getting sun. And then he says, oh, there's a story right there. (laughs) 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 How do you, how do you become one of those people who, right, goes to the beach and sunbathes all day? Um, Well, it's, the thing about sunbathing is it's a, it's a vacation thing, right? You don't sunbathe while you're at work. You sunbathe when you're on vacation. That it, it is the opposite of of work, and when I, th- I was thinking about how they're all in the military for no reason, right? Why are they in the military? Because they don't act very militaristic, right? They're, we've got a corporal, we've got the doctor who seems to be obeying a commander, um, but th- they can't just order them back to work and make them work. Um, and you guys remember that uh, that show uh, Mash? You remember that show? Oh yeah. Mash? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Corporal Klinger. Remember how he wanted to get out of the army? Yeah, he kept cross-dressing and pretending. Yeah, that's, pretending he was that's a woman. Right. Yeah. He says, "I'm crazy. I need a Section Eight, right, <laughs> <laughs> to get out of the army because I I want to refuse this this uh, work." He's he's already um, he's already in a medical unit, so he's not doing any direct combat, right? But he. It, Maybe he protests too much. Maybe he really just was, that was his way of feeling comfortable. You know, you can undercut the psychology, but um, on page uh, 93 on the second column, we get an argument that sounds like an argument for passive, uh, uh, or against pacifism, right? Listen to this. Um, Westerberg, suppose everyone felt the way you do. Suppose everyone wanted to sit in the sun all day. What would happen? No one would check ships coming from outer space. Bacteria and toxic crystals would enter the system and cause mass death and suffering. Isn't that right? And then the corporal responds, if everyone felt the way I do, they wouldn't be going into outer space. Right? Yeah, they're, is, they're deserters. They Imagine are deserters. if, 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 if everybody in the Wehrmacht would, just put down their guns, right? That's right. If everybody did what I do, being a pacifist, nobody would be getting killed right now. But if you don't go and fight at the front, you're gonna get your buddies killed. Yeah, but if there's a war on, that's right. So, and and what's funny is this is I think another also take on Bartleby the Scrivener, right? (laughs) Which he says uh, I prefer not to. He prefers not to stay inside and and work in a factory that makes jet engines that burn his friends. Right, he studied hard for this. Now those jet engines have burned his buddy. Now, if he doesn't work on jet engines, there will be no jet engines, and nobody will get burned. It's re- really interesting to think about it as a, a sort of retelling of Bartleby the Scrivener, because it's not told from the same kind of point of view, but it has sort of the same attitude. It's inscrutable this story, right? What did what does the Scrivener do in Bartleby the Scrivener? What's his job? I mean, he's a he's essentially he's a he's a he's a law copyist, right? And mm-hmm. I, mostly, it's like 
It's kind of like like that guy who worked for Ebenezer, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Cratchit. if Cratchit stops going to work, you know, that's that means you know Scrooge is going to have to fill out his own eviction notices or whatever, right? <laughs> he, that's what he's not doing. Bartleby the Scrivener is is not contributing to evictions, not foreclosing on people, right? Not you know, and it's it's like the deserter. Um, do you know there's a memorial to the unknown deserter? That's what I, I just sent to you guys. <laughs> no. It's in Potsdam, Germany. There's actually several of these, but it's it's uh, the most famous is is um, it's just a it's like a human figure carved out of out of stone. So it's just like the figure's gone. It's just a chunk of stone with the human figure carved out of it. And it's called the Memorial for the Unknown Deserter, which um, kind of like I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find it? Yeah, I found the article. Um, doesn't have a photo though. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, I actually have uh, something. I, I, it's a good thing I tweet, so I remember things because that's the only way I can remember things. <laughs> or maybe maybe I would remember things if I didn't tweet them. But I, I did a search uh, through my old tweets for Piper in the Woods, and I found um, when I was reading a uh, biography of Philip K. Dick called uh, Life of Philip K. Dick by Anthony Peake. Um, it's a hardcover that I happen to pick up and actually physically read, which is surprising because I don't usually do that. <laughs> much rather do an audiobook because I spend so much time uh, with, you know, short stories on paper. Anyways, I took a photo of it uh, in 2014 and I, uh, I wrote this. Anthony Peake suggests that Piper in the Woods by Philip K. Dick is a retelling of Chapter 7 of The Wind in the Willows. And then I took a photo of this page, and I'll read it. Read what it says. This theme of benign forgetting can be found in many of Philip K. Dick's short stories and novels, and I think that that's true. For example, in 1953, he wrote Piper in the Woods. This is a 19. This is the retelling in an off-earth setting, off-earth setting of the beautifully atmospheric chapter of Kenneth Graham's famous children's story, The Wind in the Willows, called The Piper at the Gates of Dawn in which the central characters, Rat and Mole, meet the god Pan. They are allowed to revel in the enchantment of their encounter for only a short time, however, and cannot be allowed to retain their memories. At the end of the encounter, Graham describes the slow loss of the memory. And then there's a block quote from uh, The Wind in the Willows. As they stared blankly in dumb misery, deepening as they slowly rised all they had seen, and all they had lost, a capricious little breeze dancing up from the surface of the water, tossed the aspens, shook the dewy roses, and blew lightly and caressingly in their faces. And with its soft touch came instant oblivion, for this is the last best gift that the kindly demigod is carefully is careful to bestow on those to whom he has revealed himself in their helping. The gift of forgetfulness. Lest the awful remembrance should remain and grow and overshadow mirth and pleasure, and the great haunting memory should spoil all the afterlives of the li- of little animals helped out of difficulties in order that they should be happy and lighthearted as before. For Graham, this hidden memory is the, quote-unquote, the wind in the willows that we all sense sometimes in our lives. A modern variation in that, in the sense that something is not quite right with reality, as described by Morpheus in the profoundly Philip Dickian movie *The Matrix*, and like *The Wind in the Willows*, that's the, the title, right, 
of the of the story. We all know this title of the story. Presumably, we all read it when we were young, right? Mm-hmm. I, I completely forgot this, and I completely forgot that Anthony Peake wrote about it. Um, hmm. But uh, I think it's interesting. He did apparently, yeah. He came up with this pan theory as well. Um, I I think it's really interesting. This story is, if you look at the reviews. Uh, everybody seems to think it's okay, right? But nobody, or, or the people who think it's really good, they can't say why it's really good. And the people mm-hmm. who don't like it uh, say, there's a lot of stories like this. <laughs> I this saw that. Special. I like, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, Dick uses the word Weltanschung, right? The worldview. Well, he, he, does, he does like it. To throw his German and his Ger- Germanophile yeah. references. Well, even mentioned Faust in that introduction, right? Yeah. He's always bringing up Faust. He loves Faust. Right. I, I think there's some Promethean aspect to to Dick that hasn't fully been acknowledged mm-hmm. or worked out. Um, and I, I think the Valis stuff has kind of corrupted how we look at Dick's yes, entire career. I, I still think there's this kind of we, everyone looks back from Valis rather than looking forward from. The, the short story, the way I, I that's my approach. Yeah. I mean, let mm. start at the beginning. Yeah, um, but Faust is, is there a lot more than like Jesus mm. in the early stories? Um, one of my favorite moments of this is uh, in uh, what's the t- time on a joint where he's trying, he's basically hitting on the neighbor's wife. Mm-hmm. They're sunbathing actually because he doesn't work. That's another character who doesn't work, right? He just right. does that. Stupid game, every day. Of course, it's, it turns out to be crucial, but you know, for him, it's everyone's criticizing him for not working. Uh, <laughs> but, but, he, but, he, but but he says he is. Time our It's one of my favorites. He, yeah, he, he says, works very he hard at it. Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. not, other people don't see it as work, and I, I think that's a, an issue with idleness, right? Mm-hmm. Like someone can be idle officially, like a vagrant, but still doing a lot of interesting things, right? Like mm-hmm. the hobo. The hobo mm-hmm. may be doing work, but anyways, back to this. He's Next, he's basically sunbathing next to this woman, and he uses he does the Faust line in the beginning was the deed. That's his pickup line. He says it in German to her, <laughs> and she doesn't understand it in German. But it's 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 pretty good pickup line actually if you're mm-hmm. with someone who understands the German. <laughs> um, but you know that's he's just really obsessed with Faust in in especially in the fifties and. I don't know. I, I think there's some Promethean aspect to to Dick's career that and that needs to be fully understood. But I, I don't really know where to start to do that. Uh, I was just I was thinking that there's a word that comes up in here. Um, yeah, I'm gonna just search for it here. I'm pretty sure Poppy. Yeah, mm-hmm. there uh, it comes up uh, twice. If you uh, use <laughs> a gold a gold brick, did they use that word? No, I don't think so. Uh, Watts laughed good-naturedly. Listen, Harris, you know as well as I do, that's a lot of poppycock. There are no more plants than you or I. They just don't want to work, that's all. When I was a cadet, we had a few to ma- we had a few ways to make people work. I wish we could lay a few on their backs like we used to. You think he's uh you think he's this is a simple gold bricking then? Uh so that's a term from World War II um for basically avoiding work, right? Mm. Um, and then, uh, this is, 
uh, earlier in the story. It was a warm day. The sky was almost free of clouds. Um, it's actually the part I read before, right? Where they're in the wrapped in bathrobes looking aimlessly down at the water. Then the next line, it took Harris several minutes to find Westberg. The youth was not with the other patients near or around the bridge. He had gone farther down past the cedar trees and out onto a strip of bright meadow where poppies and grass grew everywhere. Poppies are associated with the god Hypnos, right? The god of sleep. Um, and they are the gateway, right, to dream. Mm. It's, it's very yep. cool. Uh, he, uh, which which Philip, ties in with my Endemian idea. Yeah, Philip Kiddick really knows what he's doing, right? At least on some level, psychologically, when he's writing this, he knows what he's doing. He's encoding stuff in here for us. And and yet, it uh, it doesn't need to be a science fiction story. That's just how he's expressing it, right? Uh, Bartleby the Scrivener as a science fiction story does, doesn't... Uh, <laughs> Is what this is essentially, right? It's it's a it's a story for the reader to, and to try to engage with, and you know I I feel like I'm being rebuffed by the sea. You know, you're trying to swim out and you're pushed back because you express a, a theory, say, oh, I think I know what's going to happen, um, and people in their reviews they always point to the twist ending, but it, is it a twist? I think that's the whole point is that uh, it's all about the we don't understand the psychology here um, of our own motivations and what makes people do stuff. It's like Philip K. Dick sees everybody else goes off to work, right? In that introduction I gave you, introducing the author, Philip K. Dick writes about himself and how his wife and his cat are worried about him. <laughs> um, but he's sort of somehow confident that he's on the right path. Mm-hmm. But this sort of reinforces the the pan idea. Of course, with pan, you have the word panic, and mm-hmm. there. I mean, I don't know. If I, is there anti? Is there an anti work subtext to Mackin to the great god Pan? Mm. I wonder. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Helen Vaughn out in the woods doing her own thing, or having these parties, like in London, right? Taking in these hardworking men. I know in that 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 scene in the woods, it's a it's a hardworking like guy out in the woods who gets drawn in by. By Helen Vaughn in that in that story. I also I also was thinking about another. Uh, I don't know if it's yeah story with mm-hmm. with uh, you know the dryads are in the tomb by uh, Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. They're mentioned just briefly yeah. in the tomb, but um, they're also uh, alluded to in a really terrific story. I don't think I've talked to you guys about it called the Tree by uh, Lovecraft, or maybe I have mentioned it. Um, the tree is a, an amazing story because when you read it, um, unless you're paying very close attention and trying to, you know, grok it, you won't notice that it's a murder mystery. It's a murder mystery, and that it's clear who the murderer is if you're paying very close attention to the fact that it's a murder mystery. Otherwise, it just seems like a strange story. Um, and it's about two artists who are, are commissioned by a Greek city-state to create a, a statue. Um, and they're the two best artists in all of the, you know, Mediterranean, are sculptors, sculptors in the Mediterranean, and they're best friends, and they compete to create this statue, right? Whichever one is better will be the one that is bought by the city. Well, we never see what they create, but mysteriously, one of them gets sick and dies, right? 
Um, and they have two different ways of getting inspiration for their art. One of them goes off into the, into the uh, woods and grottos, right? And the other goes to the city and parties, basically. Um, one of them talks to the dryads and the uh, uh, panisci, and the other one goes and talks to barmaids and, uh, I don't know, uh, philosophers, right? And the one who dies is the one who uh, is poisoned to death by his best friend for having better art than him. <laughs> and he's the one who gets his inspiration from nature rather than um, uh, the, you know, the, I guess, art galleries and cities, city art. It's, it's a fascinating story. And he's, um, he is saying something about the nature of art in there that is, you know, if, if you're taking inspiration, where do you take your inspiration from? It's from the, it's from nature, right? Yeah. And that's why, uh, Marissa can't explain why she loves to go out on hikes. <laughs> she can't explain it, but she knows it's necessary, right? Yeah. <laughs> Did you tweet? I am a plant. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually something I noticed was missing from the story is um, there's no it doesn't touch on like art or nope. they're not they're not doing anything else with their time when they're not working. You know, like they're they literally just become plants and are doing nothing like sunbathing in the day and then basically dead at night. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, um, it's pre, it, there's no inspiration. It's, or, it's almost childhood. Like, so as a, he a very says that, young, right? Yeah. It's, it's pre, before you can become, uh, uh, creative, you need sort of uncreative time, time where you're just absorbing, right? When Philip K. Dick was reading all those stories, right? Absorbing just like a sponge up all the stuff that he was reading as a youth, he wasn't massively outputting content same with you know lovecraft he wasn't massively putting out short stories he did have a lot of creative stuff going on in his youth but not compared to his adulthood right you're totally right he even says it in the story right he says um each of the garrison crew sees the natives and unconsciously thinks of his own early life when he was Mm -hmm. a child when he had no worries no responsibilities before he joined modern society a baby lying in the sun Sucking up that that knowledge, and the the sun, of course, is you know the god of the sun, and the uh, he's he's the god of knowledge too, right? He's the god of science, Apollo. He's got mm. he's got that idea of you know he brings light to that which is, and you can see it. Um, the goddess Artemis, uh, Paul, you mentioned her earlier, um, mm-hmm. had a relationship with Pan as well, and. Uh, I think that day-night cycle, you know, it doesn't, they don't have to have one on an asteroid, right? <laughs> it could be tidally locked towards the sun. It could, it, it's a ridiculous... Or tidally locked towards Jupiter and yeah, so yeah, it's a yeah. long day-night cycle. Yeah, it, it would be a moon then, I guess, right? But uh, right. whatever. Philip K. Dick doesn't care about the particular details of this because he's setting us up for a fantasy story set in a science fiction universe. And he's working a psychological idea out that he's having. And I think it's just terrific. Uh, I don't, I still don't feel like I have this story nailed a hundred percent, but I feel like I've got it a lot more than I did, you know, eight years or nine years ago. 
Well, it's great that there's just enough there that you can have all these different interpretations and they all like can kind of work, but you can't see exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. The pipers just enough. never show up on screen, right? Right. Well, um, unless she's a piper. Because, yeah, because, I, I think, because, she, I think, she, I think I, she's not. She's, I think not she's a dryad and the, the piper is Pan, right? And we're never going to see him. The, there is a description of the... Um, and I think this is very loose, like you can't sh- say she literally is a pipe. Uh, she is literally a dryad. Because I don't think... Or that they're tied particularly to one tree like a hamadryad is. But they act as nature spirits, right? They act at, you know, they're near water. They're and the way he comes upon her in the in the photo and in the story, which is it's built up, right? That scene where he wanders into the forest and he sees a bunch of different creatures, including by the way, a golden snake, which also made me think of that Pied Piper of Hamlin little uh, story, right? Which that is, also makes mm-hmm. me think of Apollo. Oh, is uh, Ap- Apollo tied to a golden snake? Well, gold for Apollo, and Apollo has fought snakes and also the Pythias uh, mm-hmm. python. So that there's def- there's definitely a connection there. There was a and, and Apollo is Artemis' Artemis's brother. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there was a great creature, and the the description, the brief description we get of the natives is that they just hunt and fish, right? In the forest, and they don't have they're definitely not important because they don't have any written language. Um, but it, 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 what we haven't mentioned, uh, Evan, <laughs> yeah, um, is uh, that this is uh, a story of like Taipei, where people want to escape oh. work, right, <laughs> and <laughs> jump ship. On, and live in uh, and live in a valley and live in a valley of cannibals. Uh, well, and, live in a, a valley where food is plentiful. It's quote unquote and, the Garden and, and of Eden, right? And there's one person working. Yeah, but and, it's volunteered work, right? Right, right. Yeah, because when we discussed type, yeah, that, that one woman is about the only person who's actually loves to do it. She, she loves it, to do it. She's the only person who really puts well, effort into it. Everybody will come together, right? The, the they built a house for somebody very quickly, and it was half play and half work, right? For everybody. And it was surprising how much work could get done, right? <laughs> the thing is, is when you're actually having fun at work, it's not work, is it? No, it's play. It's it's fun, right? You can... Yeah, I, this is... I've had those jobs, and I actually, technically, I still do. Uh, when I tutor, <laughs> I really enjoy... I mean, unless, unless I'm being told I need to give a kid a, an AP uh, prep course in which case i'm like oh really that's what you want to do with your time that's not the way to spend your money kid <laughs> or mom so th- this is what bob black calls the the ludic lifestyle so the L-U-D-I-C. you know the question the anti-work people always get uh, and bob black is one of the major ones the question the anti or the refusal of work people get is like what are we going to do then or how are things getting done who's going to take out the garbage or something mm-hmm. right and you know he says, well, the answer is, is well, he calls it the ludic lifestyle, right? You just, you transform work into play. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd even word it that way. You would yeah, just play. And in play, get, in an get the way. essential things done. And if it can't, you know, maybe it's not that important to do, right? I think part of this, this idea is we don't need to do that much. Right. If we can, I mean, what's wrong with just sunbathing all the time? Mm-hmm. We need to have four percent GDP growth you know, to, <laughs> every year, forever. Is is that is that the end all of of life? 
That's what the robots are for, my friend. The GDP yeah. can be solved by robots because GDP is <laughs> untied to human labor now, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, increasingly. It's, it's, all, it's all about uh, finance, right? You can do it all through finance. You don't even need humans involved to get the yeah, that's, GDP that's to the go thing. There's, if there ever was a connection between labor and like income, like you work harder, you get more money. You know, no one really believes that anymore. The whole system We've is been, designed to prevent. That, yeah, right? you can just <laughs> manipulate the stock market or manipulate you know certain financial instruments and make a billion dollars. Or if you're a vulture capitalist and you uh, destroy a retailer, <laughs> another one just went down. By the way, Shopco, which is a Wisconsin-based retailer, they just went down by vulture capitalism. You know, that's you make billions doing that kind of stuff, right? Or you cut down a tree, that's GDP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the planting of the tree doesn't count as GDP, does it? It's only the cutting Well, down. not if you're doing it like in your backyard for fun or something. If it's your job, I guess it would be. Uh, sort of. It, it, because that's investment, right? So that, mm-hmm. that oh, potential yeah. GDP is not actual GDP, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyways. Um, uh, yeah, what was <laughs> Paramount Studios just got bought by Disney. Now they own everything. Like Disney's yeah, no, yeah, Fox, everything. yeah, 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 and or, and they're already saying there's going to be probably thousands of jobs who are going to be lost as a result of this consolidation. But uh, I don't think the the quality of film is going to go up radically by a shuttering of of competitive. No, movie almost houses. certainly not. Right. So it's a. Uh, it's an interesting situation where uh, we can see the reflections of of all this stuff in a story that's so impenetrable. This takes a diff- number of different keys, Jesse. That's all it takes. Yeah. What, what, what astounds me is that no one else on the internet seemed to think that this was a hard story or very difficult to understand. I, 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 I don't understand why they. That's like, um, uh, like that beyond the door. That story was the key for me knowing that Philip K. Dick is up to a game, and I'm I'm wondering, like at the time those stories were coming out and being published, were people uh, just they they just knew exactly what he was doing, and that's why they didn't write letters and saying what the hell is going on in this story i don't get it or <laughs> are they exactly the same as now and they just sort of like yep that's a story next one mm. because um beyond the door is totally not what it presents itself as it is it is a story of cuckolding and <laughs> i mean it has that in it but the fact that she's her she mentions that her her son uh, well it, you can go back and listen to the episode, but but essentially, um, her father killed her, her younger brother, and that's never mentioned in the story. But it's totally inferable by the fact that she gets upset for no reason when the neighbor across the street has the same name as whatever. You can go and look at it. It's just like, oh my god, this story is Philip K. Dick encoding a secret story inside the story, and I feel like he's doing that in here. And I'm almost, I almost have it. You know, it's just out of reach. Yeah. <laughs> you just need to talk to, you just need to talk a woman on a, on asteroid Y3 and it'll all become clear to you. Yes, yes. I'll stop, I'll stop doing all the labor that I don't do and I'd go. Yeah, the next podcast will just be Jesse sitting with his mouth open. 
<laughs> Jesse, <laughs> wait, that's, that's normally how it is, anyways. Right? <laughs> hey now. All right, one more quick thing. Um, I don't know if this is it means anything, and I don't have to. Is Diogenes in your Philip Dick rhetorizer? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. No, I don't think he's. Not, I, I no, think he's I. I want to say he's talked about Diogenes in other contexts. Now he doesn't talk about him here, but. Diogenes, of course, he calls himself a dog, right? That's the word cynic. The word cynic comes from um, the word dog. And Diogenes was a work re refusal of work, right? He was a homeless guy, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. By choice. Um, he lived in a pot. But it wasn't, he, yeah, and he lived in a pot, right? So, But he didn't call himself a plant. He, he said dog. But it has the same kind of idea of kind of idleness. Mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. Kind of being a lower life form, and there's some virtue in being a lower life form. You know, and that being a human is not that. There's not. It's not that great. I mean, if it means you just got to work all day. There is an there is an work. argument for for um, being the opposite of what Philip K. Dick is suggesting in here, and basically it is uh, you want to be on the team that doesn't go around and get uh, slaved, enslaved, right? You want to be on the team that that has a good life and if you if you aren't building ships for your fleet and if you aren't building you know nukes for your arsenal um then you're subject to the whims of those who are right so we think of the of the people of the island of um Taipei. what's the yeah. island called i can't even remember now um it's nukahiva well, that was the port. Right? Yeah. maybe was the town, right? And yeah. The more civilized part. So they're was... being colonized in that story, yeah. right? It, it literally is happening, and we've got some aggression from the natives towards the um, towards the colonizers, but they're going to lose, right? Ultimately, they're going to lose. Now, I guess eventually they're going to get some sort of independence at some point, right? But in that colonization. It's because you weren't busy building tanks, and it's because you weren't bu busy building. So, as an ind on an individual level, right, Corporal Klinger should be very happy to get out of the army any way he can, right, because he doesn't want to participate in in the war. And the, notice in the in the the television show that war lasted like. 14 years. It lasted much longer than the real yeah. war. Right. And the actual war lasted three years. They had like 12 Christmas episodes. <laughs> this war seems to go on and on. Yolanald is aging rapidly. Right. The, um, the, the, the uh, continual uh, war doesn't do anything for the individual. It chews people up. They're cogs in the machinery, as mentioned in this story. Right. Um, and that roommate... Um, the buddy who got blasted by a jet engine is now recovering, the bovine youth. Um, he, his injury is a direct consequence of the kind of field that his, his roommate is, is studying, right? If you, uh, if you think about the psychology going on in the background, it does make sense individually to opt out, to go back to the land, to get out of the, out of the system, there's a more modern term for it, um, uh, being off the grid, right? Because it doesn't help you in, as an individual, but as a part of the society that is do dominating other societies, it does make sense. 
pacifism does make sense as long as everybody goes along with it. And everybody should be a pacifist until the tanks start rolling, I guess. But really, I'm like I, I thought about a lot about pacifism when I was younger. I I don't think I am a pacifist. I'm just like tending towards pacifism as much as possible, right? Because I don't want to have those tanks roll in. I don't want to be What's, subject to that. I, I don't see how this doesn't get you to authoritarianism. I mean, this is exactly Xi Jinping's point, right? Yeah, yeah. If we're not a strong nation, we don't have a, our carrier fleet. You know, it we're just a, going to be colonized again, or we'll be dominated, bossed around by by the United States. Yeah. But it seems the path that leads down is authoritarianism. So, you know, I'm not sure there's this like a post-colonial kind of you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say, like a criticism of the refusal of work from kind of a post-colonial point of view. I mean, it might be there. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it is. I mean, you do have this obsession with development, with modernization, the speed of it, right? What's that? What's that but Philip at the end of the day, uh, there's well, a Philip K. Dick story that, that, that sort of engages with this idea. They go to, I can't remember the name of it, but we should do a show on it. It's the... What, what one? The souvenir where they got the souvenir, souvenir. Yeah, because that actually, now that I think about it, that is kind of the same infection, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I brought that is one. going on in here. Hmm, that should be a show upcoming. I think. I think you should put that souvenir. on the list. Sorry, I, I interrupted you there. No, it's just that. Uh, I'm still with Emma Goldman that that history is somehow the tension between the individual and the institution. Mm. I can't quite fully escape that. I mean, I understand there's times the institution or the collective matters, but in the age of nationalism, where it's such a constructed identity, I don't know. I, I can't trust it. Mm. You know, it's one thing for a community or or a labor union to take over the factory and organize self-defense or the Black Panthers or something, organizing self-defense. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you have nationalism involved, you're, you're talking about constructive identities. The we is is a made-up thing. It's mm -hmm. it's something opposed through education and... It's powerful. Yeah. It's powerful, but it's... It's an invention. It can be turned off. It can be turned off. Um, or you can switch over to something else, right? Um, uh, what I like about this story is that he seems to think that that uh, plantism or whatever we're going to call it um, is is just incredibly powerful, right? And I think he's wrong about that. I think they're they're always going to be uh, the people who who want to whip up uh, factories and get people. No, the work ethic is way more powerful than this. That's what I'm that's, saying. Yeah, that's why. I, I mean, even personally, you know, I'm I'm kind of on board with the refusal of work folk. The kind of the anarchist anti-work argument. I still, I'm always well, I think worried. It's, it's, with having it's a somebody job, telling right? you what you need to do. Whereas when you come to it on your own, right? Did you, uh, did any of you watch that movie? Um, uh, it was. Uh, I, I think I sent it to you, Evan. Uh, the trailer for it. Uh, maybe you, Marissa. Maybe Paul as well. It was the one. Uh, it's a sort of a satire of American uh, labor uh, from last year, and it's. Uh, thank you for calling. Thank you for calling. Right. Yeah. That's... Um, <laughs> yeah. The scene I wanted to clip and put on YouTube, but uh, it was like too much work, so I didn't do it. 
Um, and it was the scene where he, um, he, they show a video ad for, uh, what is it, Live Work Centers. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's like, it, I can't remember what it, the prefix was, but it's something Live Work Centers. And what you're realizing is it's a prison, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're in prison. So you get you get three square. You never were. Oh yeah, uh, worry free. That's what it's called. Worry free live work centers, right? You're never gonna have to worry about a job or housing again, right? It's great. Um, you get a, a great food. You get a bunch of friends to bunk with, right? Um, and yeah, you work all day, but uh, you're never gonna worry about your job and your free health care, oh. right? Everything's great. Um. <laughs> And at one point, the character considers signing up for it, right? And in fact, the whole plot of the of the movie is that is that the that evil corporation is what who he's working for, right? Selling selling people on the idea and how much money they're going to make um, as they get deeper and deeper into debt, they'll pay off your debts. It is a science fiction story in a very awesome sense. It just doesn't present as such right um in fact yeah they've got these these cowmen in in there as well the oh no horsemen that's right it was uh you guys should see this movie if you haven't seen it yeah but the, the character he like when we first meet him he doesn't have that great of a life right he's, no, no, he's it's, unemployed he's he's living in a garage like in a, of his cousin a, oh garage or I, I i immediately thought of hero protagonist from snow crash living in the the rents rental storage unit Mm. Yeah, that whole population of people in that novel living in those storage units. Um, but yeah, that's a good, beautiful that's really view. Good. <laughs> it's, a, that's a, it's a great movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, 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 I'm thinking about how how interesting it is, um, and it's fun too, which is a, a good thing. But I, I don't think it it it's quite the pizzazz for a classic movie of all time. But it's definitely uh, it's definitely worth watching. But speaking of movies, we should talk about Office Space because the the oh, thesis yeah. of Office Space, if ever, of course, everyone's seen that movie, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. of course, uh, you know, you, it's what would you do if you did if you had a million dollars or something? And like main character says, I would do nothing. It'd be a plan. <laughs> but that was his plan, <laughs> and that's essentially what what happens, right? He's hypnotized, and then he just kind of opts out. He still shows up to work, but he, wow. he's essentially put out. Uh, you know what I really liked about that movie? I, I had no idea what it was. It was just another movie when I rented it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, oh, it's a comedy. Oh, oh cool. I like comedies. Uh, what, what I really liked about it is this is one of those movies where it feels like there's it, it takes a lot longer to get where it's going than <laughs> it actually does take. Right? It feels like you're in that world for a long time. But it's just a you know regular movie length 89 minutes mm-hmm. it says um but you feel like you're you're uh you've been there before right <laughs> that you know this place and I, I, it's not like i've had a lot of regular office jobs so uh i think that that's a pretty pretty impressive um feat and the, the yeah. reason that movie is a classic is it it does exactly what it what it intended to do and it's satiring something very real, uh, something very real about our society, not just very real uh, for some people, but un- underneath there are a lot of people in those bullshit jobs still today. 
the movie is is poking fun at something, but it didn't take it down, did it? Just it just it says, "Ha ha, you're here," and yes, I am. Oh no, you're in the horror yes, show. Yes, we know. You got it. I'm exactly there. But I I think things are changing. I just don't think uh, I I don't think that that they've changed completely. Well, you got these these herbivore men in Japan. So, or what's this? The nuts, N-E-E-T's. So, not in employment education or training. Not in employment education or training. So, it's it's an acronym for government classification of people. It was first used in UK, but it spread to other countries, including Japan, China, and South Korea. Um, So, you know, there was a kind of a. I don't want to make too much of it because I don't want to parrot Western press about China, but there was this kind of. this story that like Peppa Pig was being like banned in China. It's not really what happened, but there were some online outlets who, who kind of were rocking down on Peppa Pig. Well, the reason why is because Peppa Pig is somehow inspiring this group of people. I think they're called Shohei Ren, like society folk. And that's the term for it. But they're basically opting out. They're, they're people who don't want to go to school or get a job. And this is like the big evil in China because yeah. they're, they're looking to a future where there's going to each young person who have to take care of like four old people because of the one child policy. So anyone who opts out is like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a significant social problem. How, how does, I, I, I only knew about Peppa Pig as some sort of thing in the news, but I'm looking at it now and it, it's a children's very young children's cartoon. Is that what it is? Yeah. But somehow this population in China, these that are called society people and they're, op, they're essentially opt out. But for whatever reason, they really like Peppa Pig. They really like watching. <laughs> and they're somehow inspired by, I think it's the father, maybe, the father in Peppa Pig, who's kind of this loser dad. I mean, there's a whole trope now in cartoons, especially in America, of the loser dad. Uh-huh. Like Homer had a job. Homer Simpson at least had a job. But there's you been increasing. Yeah. What's it? That there's a show. I know this because I, I have a daughter, Gumball, where the father's a, kind of a loser. And the mother has actually has the job. I, I, I was oh, thinking, um, yeah, there's yeah. Uh, Rick and Morty, the father's a loser, too. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is an increasing trope in, in, in TV. Someone should have totally analyzed that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Interesting. To break it all down. But, you know, in Japan, you have these what are called herbivore men. They're, they're generally <laughs> not in education or training. But the term herbivore comes from the fact that they choose not to date. So it's like over half of young, like, young Japanese men don't date. It, it's it's become such a problem that the government's like doing like dating training sessions for young people and things. Wow. Grass eaters. What the hell? Yeah, grass eaters. That's, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's the right term, but that, that you know, because in East Asia, you know, to get, get married, you kind of have to have a job and a, buy a house and all that. So the people who don't want to go through that, they, they, they really don't see the point in dating. Because there's such a close association with dating and marriage here, mm-hmm. so they just sort of opt out. I don't, you know, hmm. they just—I mean, opting out of the sex life too, which mm-hmm. is hard to fully understand, but it's—it's it's part of that culture. I mean, it's the same with this book. Like, there's something attractive about that idea, and like, even when we're reading this, uh, the story, sorry, like, I'm like, yeah, I can relate to this. I want to just go sit on a rock and yeah. opt out of everything and be a plant. Uh-huh. But then there's also, 
in reality, I can really only do that for like two hours at a time before I feel the pull back to my, I guess it's my programming whatever, uh-huh, to be like, uh-huh. I've got to be working. I've got to be doing something. Well, I, I, I think that it is exactly what uh, the psych. What's funny is the psychologist is completely wrong, right? <laughs> so what's going on? And I can't tell if he's lying. Uh, I don't think he is, but I can't tell for sure if he's lying um, about his theory because he starts forming a theory, right? And then suddenly he seems to be acting against his theory. Um, we have to destroy the Pipers. Well, I don't think you can. <laughs> he just fades into the forest, right? Mm-hmm. The only way to do that is to destroy the forest, which is what they did on Earth, I guess. But it, they're sort of repopulating. There's something going on there. And and when he he's, he's, he's lays out the dirt, <laughs> it's like, yeah, um, it, it, it's not, it's not, it, it's, it's basically Philip K. Dick saying, I'm going to go back to my shed now and write some more because, mm-hmm. um, as I'm walking through this, this thing, right. Uh, he, do, I don't think he saw it as normal work and his wife certainly didn't think of it as normal work. His neighbors didn't think that it was normal work. His cat's not sure. Right. And the cat's the thing that's lying <laughs> in the sun. <laughs> so there's some, there's some, uh, sort of. I mean, for a guy who was uh, all about uh, enjoying oneself, he was pretty out, uh, big output. Right, yeah. A lot of labor. Uh, well, you got to think about, I, I want to go back to something you said really early in the episode, which was about kind of the gendered aspect of this, and that, that, that native copper skin, the sunbather, mm-hmm. so it's female, it's feminized. And maybe there's something. Maybe there's something to say about that because if you look at everything he says about women throughout his career, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and that the kind of the the non-working wife, the nagging, unemployed, idle wife, mm. is a, is a trope, especially in his earlier fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So maybe he's he's watching his wife sunbathe while he's writing his story. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think he's watching everybody because... Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> so this would have been Cleo. He, Cleo would have been the wife at yeah. this point, right? Yeah. The second. The, 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 did they all leave him, or did he live, leave them? That's the question. I think they all leave him eventually. Yeah. Well, he no, well, he from Anne. no, he started with Anna, with Anne. Uh, while he was still with Cleo, I think. I think he had an, an affair or something, or mm-hmm. he kind of swapped. I he think switched. he did that to Anne as well. Yeah. If not, yeah. yeah. That's why we need the photography. Yeah, he's yeah. a troublemaker. <laughs> Tessa, Easily, uh, I think he's... Tessa left him, though. Is that right? Oh, I yeah. can't remember. By 76, 77s, you know, I think... He's... Just very easily lured off into the woods by mm-hmm. a pretty woman. Yep. But he's. But uh, always, yeah, he always has to marry him. That's what's yeah. kind of fascinating about him. Yeah. Like this, he's really seems to believe in serial monogamy. Mm. <laughs> he's a he's a he's a committed monogamous, but. Yeah, but uh, more committed to the serial part. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. The good news is all my classes are canceled for today. Oh. Why are your classes canceled? That's not oh, good because news. Because I'm, I'm going to spend the day in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Is there a sunny a day in... Dog in Wait, dogs in the sun? sun photos yesterday. So I saw those. Yeah. Is it going to be sunny today? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, you know, there's these things called weather forecasts, Jesse. Just point yeah, that out. I'd be delightfully surprised. Right? It's not like uh, the weather here is. You know, you have to. Right now, we're back in the uh, in the weather zone where. Uh, you don't have to bring a jacket, and maybe you can consider taking the roof out of your car. And nice, yeah, yeah. That's not quite here. I mean, it's it's warmer than normal here, but that warmer than normal is pretty chilly by all three of your standards. I, uh, I yesterday I I got a finally got a phone mount for my car. You know, like where you can put your phone on so it doesn't just like flop around on the seat. Yeah, um, and uh, I I put it on and I recorded my drive from uh, my apartment from the parking garage all the way to my mom's house. Like, oh, I'll, uh, I'll see what how, how the video shows up, right? Because it's just mounted in almost the perfect spot. And uh, took twelve minutes and fifty eight seconds or fifty seven seconds. I'm like, wow, that's not that long. <laughs> it's a very relaxing drive, and that's about the farthest I ever go any, anymore. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I think I'm the same, except I don't drive. So I, it, my whole life is like within walking distance. It's like basically as far as I can walk at any one time. Well, you've got uh, those hikes all in there. So you're going a lot farther than me. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm always like, yeah, I'm living like European lifestyle in the middle of LA. Yeah. Like just you're, walking you're, you're, which is a very strange. <laughs> Except he walked from his house, I think, in the suburbs, right? You're more close to the city core, right? Yeah, I'm right in the in the city, but it doesn't take very long to get to the suburbs. I walk into the rich people's suburbs and, like, look at how great their lives are. How, how great are their lives? Um, well, they're pretty different to us. Like, if I walk out of my house, there's usually, like, I don't know, maybe some human feces, maybe a guy yeah. tweaking out on meth, you know, yeah. Hollywood. And then if I go across the freeway to the rich people's lives, it's more um, hummingbirds and flowers and, you know, lovely gardens well, and peace and quiet. My understanding is it's the view that's the important part, right? Like as long as you got all the same, you got a dishwasher, you got a washer dryer, you got a sink and a, I, yeah. I think the, the view is the important part. So you look out there and see human feces and, and the homeless people fighting, that's not so, such a great view. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but well, you get used luckily, to the rest of it. I, I just look the other way. I don't, don't look down. You know, we're on the third floor, so don't look down at the street. You just got to look up at the hills and the trees, you know, right, and then right. it's all good. Yeah. Well, now I know what Jesse's music tastes are like. No, I, I, I just didn't have my audio uh, audiobook playing, and I'm, like, getting bored, and... and I turned the radio on. Well, I clarinet. It's just what they were playing. That was on CBC. Wait, where are you seeing that? The, the link he just shared, it's, it's, his, it's his drive uh, uh, to Anmore. 
I see I see mountains, Gandalf. Mountains. There are mountains and oceans. <laughs> you don't hike the mountains? Um when I was young, that's all I did. I lived for that. Um, awesome. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. Um I've sort of hiked it out. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I'm worried about that. I'm like, because <laughs> I go there like once a week, and I'm like, there's only a few trails left that I don't know. I'm like, how oh, well, I might have to move to another have people to deal imagine. with, right? Um, and I sometimes my friend yeah. Steen loves hiking still, but uh, yeah. he wants to drive long distances to go to new hikes. Oh uh, yeah, I'm not into that as much. But uh, there are some very pretty walks. I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I sent Paul, or uh, maybe Steen sent Paul some photos from from above Bunsen Lake, looking looking at Vancouver and down in yes, and, those are wonderful. Yeah, there's um, if you like nature, this is a good place to hike. Yeah, that's why um, I end up hiking a lot because I, I never say no to a hike. So if someone asks me, I'll mm. always go with them. Mm-hmm. But also, I like to hike and listen to audiobooks, so mm. then I always have to go again to like <laughs> so I can go by myself and listen to an audiobook. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, only my husband lets me hike with him and not talk to him. I can put my audiobook on when he's hiking with That's me. Nice, <laughs> yeah. Shut up for a couple hours, would you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's enjoy this this nature separately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm turn- making sure all my things that could wreck our podcast are off. Um, and I somewhere on my phone I took a screenshot it's- of an old Oops. post. Is Evan here? Yeah, Evan's yeah, I'm here. here. Oh, He's oh, just quiet. Morning, I mean, good night for you, right? Good evening. Yeah, I'm good. Oh. Hey, uh, did you get your book? I just got Your up. PKD uh, oh. comic? Still not come? It's, I mean, I, or, I ordered it. Okay. And then, it, I don't know. Sometimes you order stuff, and then they're like, oh, uh, like two months later, we can't get it or something. That even happened with book uh, depository. Oh, yeah. Uh, so... Well, if you feel the need to go ahead without me. No, no, no. no, no. It can't be There's far no away rush. now. There's no rush. I'm sure it's on the way to you. All right. Um, so, wait, Evan, did you say you just got up? I thought you were always on, like, midnight. Or did you go? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I work tomorrow, so I, I took some a few hours sleep. Oh, wow. You're dedicated. We're special. Yeah. Right. I, I get up so, so early, even on weekends. Yeah, work. This regular job is. Oh yeah, you're 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 doing a regular uh, job again, right? Oh no, no, that's Brian who's doing a regular job. You have always had a regular job. Well, when I was in Taiwan, I I was like adjunct professor, tutoring. I was more bouncing around, but decided I need some money. So. <laughs> so I got the regular job, but it's. It's like nine hours in the office. They expect you in there. That's crazy. Ooh, that's so gross. They, they have. They, they say, "Well, we got this long siesta. It's like an hour and a half for lunch." But it's just more time at work. Yeah, you know, just, I hate. Not like that. I go out to for a beer or something. I remember that when I used to work in corporate, I'd want to take the shortest lunch break possible so I could leave early, and they'd be like, "No, you have to take a long lunch break to relax." And it's like, I would yeah. just want to. Get this stuff done and get the fuck out of here. Yeah, <laughs> that's weird. I I think some people like 
enjoy being at work more than they enjoy their life outside. For sure. sure. I feel like if you get into like a bad marriage or anything like that, that's 100% yeah. true. <laughs> like it's, it's their playtime, right? It's like yeah. the same people. Remember those people who, who really enjoyed school? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like I'm not sure that there's a really one-to-one relationship there. Oh. I enjoyed school work. Yeah, I don't. No, like I don't get they excited. Liked, oh, they, they liked going to school. They liked being at school. And, that was me. And, and did you enjoy? Would, would you get upset when there was like a snow day or? A... Um, there were rarely snow days in New York City because okay. you know New York City was uh, cheap. You know, but so 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 I'd wind up. Uh, what I would resent would be where we get to school and there's nobody there because it is half the kids didn't show up because of snow and then we'd have to do busy work. So you I like hate it busy work. Hate it busy work. Yeah, well, it's because it's babysitting. That's what yeah, it's like I even said it once. This is baby. This is busy work, and the teacher, and the substitute teacher, was not happy with me. Wow, pull the rebel! I never imagined that. <laughs> He's rebelling. At, at I did of, rebel. Lack of uh, <laughs> regular schoolwork. Well, I'm going to go to school for something, damn! If I'm going to come through six inches of snow, I'm, I don't want to sit here doing stupid problems that. Don't teach me a damn thing. Oh, man. I was the little bitch that used to like, I mean, to my, I'm saying I'm, I'm a little bitch. So my mom would just like accidentally miss the bus every day. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever I could do to get out of it. Oops, missed the bus again. Oh, my, my students hate that busy work because they're under so much pressure to take the AP exams, mm. which is kind of useless. I try to tell them, you know, just prepare for college. Don't. Yeah. Who cares about the AP exam? Well, you might, you the, might get a credit, but all that means is you don't take a cool class in college. What's the AP? History. Like, why wouldn't you want to take world history from a college professor yeah. instead of getting out of it? Even if their school takes the credit. But their parents are, are like, you got to do the AP exam. Yeah. So if right. you don't What's give the, them, like, if, if something you do in class is not directly related, they, they know. And they, they get kind of upset. Advanced placement. And then there's another one here as well called... Uh, international baccalaureate it's yeah i be that's the british it's just more ways to uh show off your greatness as as a student so that you your parents can get you into an ivy league university and then Uh, they can brag to their their neighbors that my son's going to harvard or i see instead of just paying instead of just bribing (laughs) people like you do here (laughs) i see oh well why don't we do a show on something the opposite of all of the stuff we've been talking about? Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, I will check the recorder. Oh, yeah, it's working. Good. Okay, here we go.